Hey, I'm Andy. If you don't know me, it's probably because I'm not famous. But I did start a men's grooming company called Harry's. The idea for Harry's came out of a frustrating experience I had buying razor blades. Most brands were overpriced, overdesigned, and out of touch. At Harry's, our approach is simple. Here's our secret. We make sharp, durable blades and sell them at honest prices for as low as $2 each. We care about quality so much that we do some crazy things, like buy a world-class German blade factory. Obsessing over every detail means we're confident in offering a 100% quality guarantee. Millions of guys have already made the switch to Harry's, so thank you if you're one of them. And if you're not, we hope you give us a try with this special offer. Get a Harry starter set with a five-blade razor, weighted handle, shave gel, and a travel cover, all for just three bucks plus free shipping. Just go to harrys.com and enter 5,000 at checkout. That's harrys.com, code 5,000. Enjoy! Welcome to another episode of Reptile and Chill. I'm Mike. And I'm Danny. I am the Hots. And for all those listeners who are listening for the first time, this podcast is available to listen to from the Reptile and Chill Facebook page, Spotify, iTunes, and most other podcasting platforms. And if you want to help support our podcast, please head on over to reptileandchill.bigcartel.com and look at our hoodies and t-shirts for sale. Now, let's get on with the show. Yeah, boy. Hey, good evening. Good evening. Good evening. (laughs) It's great to be back listening to you, pair of numpties. Go on. (laughs) Without the uh, the organ grinder last week was. Mate, come on. It was so much better without you. You have to admit. (laughs) You know what? I'm I'm really. It's It's horrible. (laughs) I'm actually. Glad that you've taken the time this week to actually spend some time with us, mate. Um, Do you thank, know what? thank you. On behalf yeah. of yourselves and the listeners, I want to apologise for my absence last week, and I do want to explain because I'm a little bit unhappy with you two, right? Because appalling. You, you I, I had explained throughout the day why I was ill. And you didn't mention that at all. You wanted to make out that I'd been out the day before and I'd got pissed up and uh, uh-huh. <laughs> and I was and I wasn't able to. Uh, I wasn't. You know, it's true. I'm on the show. No, absolutely not. So, so just for everybody's information, I was um, diagnosed with tonsillitis, severe tonsillitis, the week before. I went on a course of antibiotics for a week yeah, yeah. they finished on friday i was feeling okay on friday um we had a, a the, the big bearded villain event that i'd spoke to on, i've spoke to you about on previous podcasts uh, on the saturday so it was a worldwide meet we had um guys and girls coming across from all over the world 15 different countries if i'm honest with you um some like and norfolk Norfolk. um we had we had um people from israel america puerto rico all throughout europe um it was absolutely fantastic and um that you know that was a half 11 start to set that up and 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 it was a phenomenal day and evening um 
Hoss came down with his band, uh, Devil in Dorian, and I'm not joking you, mate, I was so proud of him. Uh, it was like watching... You best not start brother. crying, mate. You start crying, <laughs> oh, and I'm booting you up. <laughs> it, was, it, was, it, was, it was like watching my little brother. I was like, fuck it, go. And, and I'm not joking you, the response <laughs> that, uh, that they got was fantastic. So um, I've got one question. Yeah. When did they change the name of Stella to tonsillitis? <laughs> <laughs> well, you know too well that I do not drink uh, lager, mate. I drink Strongbow. <laughs> oh, that's true. That is true. You're a so, man, aren't you? But if I'm honest with you, like, Hoss did his set and, and, and stayed behind a bit after. And... Um, but there was a couple of other bands on as well, and we was having a laugh and a joke with them. And then I had to do sort of like the big raffle, and Hoss come up to me whilst I was doing the raffle. And he went, right, I'm, I'm, I'm going now. I went, mate, wait for me, because cause I'd been under the weather. I didn't want to be late that night. Um, and, and literally, I went home with Hoss. And, um, yeah, I was home before the missus and kids. I thought, brilliant, I'll be up for the rugby in the morning. Yeah, woke up in, in the morning and... My tonsils were the size of golf balls, covered in poison, and uh, Sam went, yeah, Ooh. you're out of it for today. And I'm not joking, you went back to the doctors on Monday, doctor took one look and he went, you, you can't work like that. He said, you, you, you're in a bad way, and he, he prescribed me another load of um, antibi- antibiotics. <clears throat> I'm still not over it now, you can obviously hear that. <laughs> um, That's grim. Maybe you should stop talking and take a breath. <laughs> you know what? I'm just going to put something out there, mate. You, right. When you purchase or get given antibiotics, there's something in the instructions that says do not consume with alcohol. Ah, I'm a professional. At oh, this. that's where you went wrong. And only, <laughs> and only certain antibiotics say that, and these ones definitely didn't. <laughs> but can I just say, okay, Take that all aside, um, we raised in one day over £4,000 for Ronald McDonald House. Um, so that's takings on the door. We did a raffle. Obviously, Hoss was there and his band and, and, and other bands were playing. We did loads of different things to make money. And literally, that one day alone um, raised us over £4,000 for Ronald McDonald House. So if there's any listeners out there who don't know what that that Ronald McDonald house is basically it's 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 in in layman's terms it's a hotel bolted onto the side of Birmingham Children's Hospital so if any parents have got their kids in hospital going through um serious operations and need to spend time there they don't have to pay for hotels to stay in Birmingham they will put them up at Ronald McDonald house so it's an absolutely fantastic place um and yeah and the money's still growing because there's still people donating left right and center so uh yeah it was a it was a massive success and i've had another week off work (laughs) you know what for someone who's they took a breath no no for someone who's got a really sore throat and apparently has tonsillitis mate you can still fucking talk he talks doesn't he bless him oh god i do don't i you genuinely do. Like, we thought Francis talked a lot. You, mate, you outdo Francis. Francis ah, got nothing. You know, you know, you know what I've got today, mate? I talk sense. Because of obviously... You are? I talk Because of who you've got coming on the podcast tonight, um, I've brought my uh, little friend. That's my fucking job. 
<laughs> you know, one I, job I had, right? Okay, you know what? my job I... on this podcast. No, no, no. <laughs> I've got two jobs on this podcast, right? Take the fucking piss out of people and bang my gavel, right? Actually, and you had three, mate. One, one, just, one was singing. One was singing, and uh, yeah, that's come out the window I'm still tonight. Not interested in that. <laughs> Yeah, so for, for everyone who, who you know has been requesting for Danny to sing, we really tried. Uh, it's we Christmas. Tried we tried to deliver. Unfortunately, he's, he's a faggot. Yeah, he's, he's a complete faggot. Um, actually, that's that's offensive to guys. That is, he's not a faggot. Um, he's basically just a complete letdown. He and, is. Um, yeah. I'm sorry we've ruined your Christmas. <laughs> um, anyways, the reason why I've got a, the reason why I've got a gavel is I don't think. One gavel is enough to keep Francis at bay. So two okay, gavels. Okay, that's a good point. You know what I mean? Um, I don't even know if I've got a gavel. Hang on. Where is my gavel? There it is. Enough bullshit. <laughs> bullshit. <laughs> oh, sorry. You know we swearing, didn't we? Yes, yes. So, oh, no. right, okay. So, guys, if oh, we need, we, yeah, we need to know, we need to know um, <laughs> what you guys think. So. We've had someone complain about the language on this podcast. Um, I'm not going to say who it is. Um, whilst I do understand that people can get offended, we are three heavily tattooed and bearded men. We do drink whilst we are recording this podcast. And two and a half bearded men. Yeah, two and a half men. Um, yeah. Two men. <laughs> two and a half beards. Yeah. <laughs> <Hey>. <laughs> um. So yeah, so let us know your opinions on I, this. I, because... I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to jump in there, right, Hoss, because you've just made out that all the blokes with bald heads, beards, and tattoos <laughs> are going to be the ones yeah, that Mike, swear. Mike, not so I, don't, much. I don't swear that often, if I'm honest with you. Yeah, but you haven't got hair, so... And I tell you what, I was, dis- I was disgusted last week with you, you t- your, your, your language because I wasn't there to rein you in. We've had a message in from 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 Jody. Uh, apparently, the Birmingham accent's really bad, or that they mean the swearing. Um, they are actually talking about us cussing uh, continuously throughout the whole show. Um, but yeah, I do agree. The Birmingham accent is pretty bad as well. It um, is, yes. Ha- ha- however, you are from Derby, and you can't say t- anything. <laughs> <laughs> that was the worst. That was the worst happy accent ever. <laughs> One to pub. So, so we haven't no, really look, explained, we haven't basically really explained here's the bottom tonight, line. have we guys that we are actually here, live tonight? The, yeah, here, here's the bottom line. We swear. Get over it. Um Gary Bateman That's says <laughs> hi. How you doing, Gary? Hi, Gary uh Ricky unfortunately has commented as well. Um the collective accents, apparently, in this whole podcast is going to be pure vile. Um, <laughs> okay, I'll correct you. Apparently, Jody's originally from Somerset. Um, that's even worse. Oh, Somerset. That's, that's like, that's like that one is. step down from Norfolk, that is. Ooh. <laughs> Jenny's come on as well, and, and, and she's absolutely right. She said swearing is an expression. They tried, they've tried to stop uh, Jen swearing. Um in Mark presentations, and I told them to f off. <laughs> can I? Can I? Just, Mike, you're actually I, been really well behaved, do not yeah, you? I we need a couple that. more beers actually, in Mike. Please. She told them to fuck off, not f off. Can you please read out the comments <laughs> correctly, please? Sorry. Yes, come on. 
This is a professional podcast here. <laughs> I'm not. I'm not a lover of swearing. If I'm honest with you, I, I think there's a time and a place for it when it's actually needed. So when I swear at you, you know that I'm really, really pissed off. <laughs> Usually, the time and the place is the reptile and chill podcast. <laughs> definitely. <laughs> right, okay, so, um, this week we're not going to do no, our, I um, to... <laughs> feature things because I, I can't be asked to edit them in and whatnot. Um, no, nah, but so rather than doing all that and doing it all live and fucking it all up. Um, have you got anything you want to moan about today, this week, Danny? Uh, no, not really. I'm I'm in a good place. That's, it's good, isn't it? It's live. I, I need another beer. I'm pissed oh, yeah. off about that. I've got a little bit of news that I'd like to mention. Only because I'm really jealous. Luke and Zach have just had their new Scrub Python. Oh. And, uh, I've sent some pictures through of it. And... Uh, I am literally getting rid of all my carpet pythons now, and I'm <laughs> and I'm going to invest in scrubs. That thing is on a different level. It's, it's absolutely stunning. stunning. Absolutely stunning. Um, for anyone who wants to see a picture of that, I'm just about to upload one to our Instagram page. So that is at Reptile and Chill. Um, I think uh, I think that should be the hurt of the week. Uh, you know what? I, I, I agree. Um, fuck it. Uh, just don't credit. Zook, Zook, Zook and Lack. Don't credit Zook and Lack. Because they're a pair of bricks. <laughs> hey, that's my son you're talking about there, uh, Danny. How many sons have you right. got? Well, he's, only, he's only a fucking plant. A, a few as, 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 as I go along. When you become 41 years old, you, you'll have a, a couple of additional sons. The, well. chan- the chances of me getting to 40 odd years old is pretty darn slim, man. I'm going to have a heart attack before that. <laughs> So that that was the one thing I wanted to do. The other one, I just I haven't had a chance to speak to um, Nick and Ollie from Reptile Courier, Courier EU, but yeah. I did see a post that they're now couriering uh, internationally. So that could open up quite a few avenues for 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 a few of us or certain people. Um, uh, I want to get a bit more information from from Ollie and Nick about how they're going about that and 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 whatnot. But uh, it would definitely worth uh, on the on, on one of the next podcasts we do in the new year, um, bringing everybody up to speed on that. Right, and um, Lorenzo just wants to update us and say that Zach and Luke actually sold their best scrubs to him, uh, that which they were um, Frank Schofield line Barnet scrub pythons. Um, he's wrong. The Clastolepis is better, um, and I hope the female. Um, bites him sometime soon. Um, that, that individual, just for that comment, that, that individual animal. So I went round to Zach and Luke's to play with them barnecks, and they were probably around about the four foot mark at the time. And the female was just hideous, absolutely hideous. It doesn't matter what direction you come come from, you just couldn't get anywhere near her. She actually took the hook off me. She just tangled up on it. She like, took like, the hook off you. Yeah. Quite literally, my, like, this is mine, mine now. now fuck off. Um, and I was just like, you know what, you can have it. I don't really like that hook. Um, and I actually came back for it about three or four days later. <laughs> it just wouldn't let go. Um, not one of my finest moments. Not going to lie. Um, yeah. So, yeah, Herp of the Week is definitely the Clastolepis. Um I'll post that up later when I can be asked. Um, have you got anything exciting, Mike, this week? Or is that about it? No, I've gone through all my exciting um, information that I wanted to put out there. Um, apart from apart from that, yeah, I mean, obviously, I've had a right shit week. I've been off work all week, and um, 
to, to top it all off as well, both kids have come down with a sickness bug as well. Oh, so no. Maya was ill on Sunday night, so she was off school for a couple of days. But Billy, he was then sick on uh, on Monday evening. And there's a policy of they can't go into school for 48 hours if they're, when they're sick. He literally threw up, and as he finished, he went, that's me done till Thursday, Dad. And I went, well, then last night... He was like, Dad, Dad, I'm sick. I'm going to be sick. I'm going to be sick. So he threw up again. We've got the sick bowl in there. He threw up again. And then he went, that's me done till Monday now, Dad. <laughs> Ooh, um, oh, I haven't told you, Mike. I think Danny knows already. Um, on Monday, I'm picking up a pair of leopard tortoises. Ah, yes. Oh, yes, you are. Uh, yeah. I think I, I have heard about these, yes. Yeah, so what size are they? They're only tiny, aren't they? Well, yeah, so they're a pair. Hey, horse. So they're a pair. Hey, horse. So, what? They're, they're not children's pythons, though, are they? No, they're not. But I've, that, that's been sorted, mate. So don't worry about it. That's been sorted. He's on it. He's on it. <laughs> um, you know, again, you mentioned on the podcast that you want something, and then 48,000 people start messaging you. I've got this, I've got this, I've got this. <laughs> I've had the opportunity <laughs> to buy about eight of them so far. Um, yeah, pretty cool. But yeah, these leopard tortoises, um, Chris Newman basically went, uh, you're having them. And I was like, all right, then, cool. Um they're probably about five and a half, six centimetres. They're only babies. Um, whether they turn out to be a pair or not, I'm not really bothered. Um, they're, they're free lawnmowers. Um, <laughs> yeah. So I'm, I'm pretty happy. I'd, I'd need quite a few of them for my garden then, if they're five centimetres. <laughs> they, they will grow. Yeah. <laughs> right, okay. Um, <laughs> I'm going to add our guests in um, for I think we this should. evening. So, oh, what already? Yeah, because I think the, oh. well, I think that the uh, the quicker we get this over and done with, the better for everyone. To be completely honest, um, <laughs> don't say <it> like that. <laughs> I think so, I think <laughs> in the morning it'll invite questions coming in. We can have discussions, debates, and and that's what it's all about. I mean, you're sounding well, quite negative tonight, Hans. <laughs> so basically what we're doing tonight is we're going to be discussing all things bioactive wild recreation and field herping and what we can take from field herping and bring into the captive setting um so we've got taron boone ricky johnson and francis koshkiri or however the hell you pronounce that bloke's surname you've never been able to pronounce him um it's, 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 surname, have you, mate? Nah, I, i've got a better one but i can't repeat it on air um <laughs> well yeah you can Oh, yeah. You can just swear <laughs> your life away, but uh, you can't mention his surname in a different way. <laughs> Did you hear him trying to pronounce the herb of the week last week? <laughs> I was I did, yes. It's shocking, isn't it? It's shocking. The worst but, thing hey, is, is we went over it ten times it. before we even started. Uh, <laughs> look, I struggle. Leave me alone. Are you, are you there, guys? Yeah. Hello. That's really yep. mm. Was that a Ricky? Francis there? That was the sound of the Francis. Uh, oh, that was a Francis. And this Ricky? is Ricky. Hello. Ricky, you're there coming through like, nice, loud and clear. Francis, you need to turn your microphone up. No, that's not a bad thing. That's <laughs> not a bad thing. <laughs> and Taron? Hey, hey Taron. Right. Can you hear me now? That's better, unfortunately. Huge. Literally sounds like you're coming from Gibraltar. <laughs> yes. Yeah. <laughs> just like okay, guys. thing before we start yeah absolutely oh, oh, he started already that's it you're going to need a bigger gavel <laughs> I've got a bigger gavel <laughs> yeah, da- Danny <laughs> uh, Danny can you do me a favour on the cap oh shit 
Well, I can do louder than that. <laughs> <laughs> You've not got the ability to make it louder when you edit it, though. <laughs> ah, yeah, that's the thing you say. We 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 fall for this trap every time, don't we, Danny? Yeah. We're going. Oh, Hoss has done this. Oh, and no, Hoss no. has done that, and he just edits it out because he has the tools to do it. We have to. We have to. We we get given what we're given and and go along with it. So uh, <laughs> you right, guys okay. are happy so, too. Before before we get cracking on with tonight's topic, um, <laughs> one thing I do want to mention is Carpet Fest. Um, so people have started buying tickets to Carpet Fest, which has been absolutely awesome. Um, we're doing a bit of a barbecue, and I've named the burgers that we're going to do. Um, I've You've what? I've named the burgers, mate. In what sense? Like Sally and Jeffrey? And... Well, no. So we're going to do like a quarter pounder, and we're going to call that one the Wells. And then we're going to do a, a half pounder. It's small. Oh, OK. Right. And then we're going to do a half pounder, and we're going to call it the Phelps stack. Right. <laughs> And then we're going to do a vegetarian or vegan or gluten-free option, depending on who comes. And we're going to call that the anti hoss So, yeah, man. So, um, feel free to come down and... Uh... Are you then going to do a three-pounder and call that the hoss? <laughs> Again, I've got feelings. <laughs> How is that diet going now, anyway, mate? Um, About eight pound. Have you? Yeah, yeah. I'm fucking skint. <laughs> <laughs> right then. Um, guys, I think we need to get these a little bit more serious. I think, um, should we get the guests just to give themselves a little bit of an introduction on who they are and what they do within the hobby and, and yeah. sort of like what they keep? I think that would be great, wouldn't it? Ricky, go. <laughs> before oh, Francis I'm people say go. <laughs> go. <laughs> Hi, I'm Ricky. You probably know me from forums, usually being people off in some way or writing too much. Uh, or from Skinks. Skinks are my thing. Um, 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 what, do you, what do you keep, Ricky? Uh, I've Skinks. kept yeah. many things. At the moment, I'm, I'm keeping a lot less, uh, mainly uh, zebra skinks, uh, olive tree skinks, pink tongue skink, and uh, a few galley wasps. But Fantastic. most of my... Uh, most of my keeping is now at work as I uh, work for Hale's own college uh, caring for the animal collection and teaching students and all that stuff that's pretty cool, cool. Mm. it is yeah Francis hello I'm Francis um, returning again on on here um, <laughs> if we're going to copy Ricky's very polite introduction you may know me from advancing <laughs> herpetological husbandry and also I've recently joined Herp HQ uh, with Sam Perrett very nice guy uh, and also, we'll be producing the uh, quarterly magazine Herp Bites starting 2019. Uh, and I keep most things, again, really, uh, mostly lacertids, uh, a lot of snakes, so samophids, whip snakes, lots of rat snakes. Uh, but really a bit of this and that, to be honest. You know, most things that you can find in the hobby I've kept at one time or another. Fantastic. Awesome. And Taron, finally. Hi, yeah, I'm Taron. Uh, most people probably recognise me as one of the owners of Bioactive Herps, a shop dedicated to naturalistic and bioactive enclosures. And keeping wise, I've got a bit of a mishmash. I've got uh, some Indian star tortoises, uh, monkey-tailed skinks, some Cuban blue-headed anoles, a rainbow boa, and a pair of tomatoes. Excuse me, pair of Spot on. 
Nice collections, boys. Right. So then. we're going to start the discussions off now, and and I suppose uh, we're going to go through sort of like uh, Francis. I think you wanted to say a little bit about you know enrichment and 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 going to sort of like UVB and why animals need it and and whatnot. So do you want to kick off with that? And I think Ricky's going to back you up yeah, with regards so to the lighting. Just, just as a basis for our listeners. Can we define what enrichment actually is? Yeah, I think that's probably the best place to start. As to, it's quite a woolly term. Like you, you see it bandied about a lot, and a lot of people don't seem to understand what it means or misinterpret it to mean something else. So when we say enrichment, it's all it is is a welfare principle that seeks to enhance the quality of captive care by identifying and providing the environmental stimuli necessary for optimal psychological and physiological well-being. In other words, it's nothing more or less than providing the things that allow an animal to express its natural behaviours and at the same time um, reduce things like stress, um, which can be manifested in various ways, and we'll go into that in just a moment, um, and allowing positive interaction with the captive environment. So, I mean, basically that's all there is to it. Cool. Right, okay. <laughs> so, I mean... It, can involve many things. Okay, yes. Let's let's go on to um, what are the most common ways of providing enrichment. So let's start with um, just something simple like a corn snake. What what can we what can we do to our you know our, our bog standard wooden vivarium to provide enrichment? What would the uh, the first things that you go for? Okay, so I mean, it's it's quite lucky you've mentioned corn snakes actually, as they're actually one of the species that have had most studies done on them um, regarding enrichment and its effects on their behavior, their development, um, their stress levels and so on. So if we go into what enrichment is trying to prevent, basically it's trying to prevent stress for these animals and stress, I mean, I'm going to sort of divulge a little bit and take this in a roundabout way, but when we talk about stress from a biological means, what that means is the level of hypothalamus, pituitary, and adrenal axis activation. Can I that have that with Just to... <laughs> in, lay, in layman's terms. In layman's terms. For example, when you're stressed, um, various hormones are released into your blood. So, for example, in repulse, the stress hormones would be corticosteroids or glucocorticoids. And we can measure those in blood or in the urine or feces. It can also manifest in varying levels of leukocytes or white blood cells. Um, it can affect immune function, in other words, the animal's immune system, and it can even affect things like regenerative anemia, in other words, the, the erythrocyte count or blood, red blood cell count. So when we're measuring stress in captive animals, the, the basic measure would be to measure corticosteroids or leukocyte ratios in the blood. That's the most widespread way of measuring how stressed an animal is. So... If we go back to what we want to provide for a snake, we want to provide it good welfare. We want to provide the best we can for it. In other words, a way for it to display positive behaviors and not display abnormal behaviors. Mm -hmm. When we talk about abnormal behaviors, there's, there's loads of different ones that can be shown. But in snakes, it can be anything from, for example, glass surfing. I'm sure you've seen, you know, um, it can be lethargy. It can be not moving when they should be moving. There, there are loads of ways that stress can manifest and affect the yeah. behavior. Non-feeding, not feeding, exactly. Um, now, I mean, now that you mentioned not feeding, I and mean, we're digressing a bit more, but 
I'm sure we've all heard the expression, it's eating, shedding and pooping, and therefore it's healthy. You must have, you know, it's, it's used on adverts. It's, it's used as a sort of indicator on whether or not the animal is doing well. Yeah, 100%. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's, it's a very common term. Now, what I'd like to posit is, and this is, I'm sure, going to get a lot of anger reactions, but hear me out because I want to, to basically demonstrate what enrichment is and why it's going to affect welfare. Now, eating, shedding, pooping, and to a lesser extent, breeding, those are natural biological functions they're not necessarily good indicators of welfare. So for example, yes, an animal not eating could well be an indicator of illness, stress whatsoever. It doesn't necessarily have to be. Lots of animals go off food at various times of year mm -hmm. despite being healthy. Again, shedding or not shedding can also be an indicator of an animal not being healthy. But then again, an unhealthy animal can also be induced to shed just by putting it into a tub of wet sphagnum moss. It's not, it's a basic function. So the fact that it's shedding, it's doing what it normally should. That's normal. That doesn't mean that it's above and beyond what it could be. You know, it doesn't mean that its welfare is the best it could be. And again, when people say the animal's pooping, well, of course it's pooping. I mean, if it wasn't pooping, something really serious must be happening. I mean, you would have, you know, some sort of blockage or cancer in the gastrointestinal tract. The fact that it's pooping is like the most basic function that you can have. Mm -hmm. um, you know, it's an involuntary reflex. Animals. Well, yeah, I mean, you know, one of the things that we do to check for sickness animals is check the poo. We do fecal examinations and we check that. So just the fact that it's poop doesn't mean that it's not ill. Mm -hmm. It just means that it's pooped. It's a basic function. Yep. So that sort of brings me what on it to means what... it, it has a hole. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> now, something has course, to come out of it. Things <laughs> yeah. indicators the animals are healthy. That, you know, obviously, if it's not doing any of those things, something serious is wrong. But they don't necessarily mean that the animal is, is healthy either. An unhealthy or sick animal can do all of those things. Well, just just taking it back to layman's terms as well, if I chase you down the road with a pickaxe, you're going to shit yourself. So just because yeah. you're pooing doesn't... Mean you're not stressed? <laughs> and again, that's the worst analogy ever. <laughs> but, it, but it works. But it works so well. well, I mean, and that, that's the problem with stress. I mean, stress has got... There's, there's two types of stress that we'd look at. There's acute stress, which is short-term stress, which would be the kind of stress that you just mentioned. If you were chased down with a guy by a guy with a pickaxe, that would be stress, but it would go away after a few hours. And, and, and Francis, am I right in saying that's not a bad stress? Because some, in, in, in a human term, some people need that kind of stress. You know, there's boxers, they need that little bit of stress to give them that fight. Is that the same exactly. in animals, would you say? Well, they need that bit of stress to either get out the way or... or, or, or yeah, or I mean, whatnot. it's a defence mechanism, but it's context-specific. I mean, and that's the important thing. Yeah. So, for example, if you have two male lizards say green lizards or skeleporous fence lizards, they're going to be squaring up to each other to, to mate with the, the juicy female that's like just a few feet away. Of course, they're going to have elevated stress for a few minutes because they've seen the male and they're going to fight him. Now, logically, what happens when you've got increased in um, corticosteroids in the blood is that it should reduce reproductive behaviors. But that, again, is context specific. So a lot of people saying that if they were stressed, they wouldn't breed. It's not necessarily true, and it does depend to some extent on context. So, for example, oh. those two lizards that they have a fight, 
as soon as they finish that fight, I guarantee they'll be the, the winner will be boinking that female like there's no tomorrow, despite the elevated. <laughs> and and, and that, that's a normal thing. That that's a yeah, normal thing. As as, uh, as Jennifer has mentioned mm-hmm. in the comments, that's actually the the stress known as eustress, yeah. uh, which in some in some forms is known as enrichment. Uh, well, because exactly. it actually I mean, improves some of their behaviours, uh, which we would precisely. see in the wild and normal. Yeah. And we had well, Nico on the on the show a couple of weeks ago, and he was talking about this, and he was saying that some of, like, especially like his white lips, they would not breed unless that happened. Yeah, not only that, but um, in some even uh, what would be considered truly negative uh, stressful situations doesn't mean the animals won't breed, doesn't mean exactly. the animals won't uh, go straight to their biological normal behaviours. Well, uh, I mean, that leads uh, us on Francis to has a really good example of, of this, I'm, I'm, sure, I'm sure you can say. Well, you oh, yeah, was that the Philodryas? Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, there was one time about 2004, 2006, I remember going to Ham, and at the time I was quite into my Philodryas Baroni, the, um, I don't really think they've got a common name, but they're like the uh, or... Baron's Racers or Arrogates. Baron's Racers, yeah, the green Baron's, yeah. have a pointy nose. So I had a few of them already, and I wanted to get an extra female. Um, drove all the way to Ham, went with Tarantula Bon. Bought the snake. Now, you've got to remember that to get to ham, obviously, whoever's taken it to ham has taken it, you know, maybe for a, a couple of days in a tub. It stayed in their mm-hmm. hotel room. It's then been displayed on a table. I've then bought it. I've driven it back for eight hours. It's gone on the ferry. It's then gone on another car and driven back. Mm-hmm. It's arrived. It's been plonked in a viv. Uh, you know, and I plonked the two snakes together. I bought them together, put them together, and literally within three minutes, they were mating. Now, so you're, you're classing that as eustress? Well, it's a stressful environment, and yet it's they've still started mating. So mm-hmm. I don't know how. I think it's that. it's more of an example that uh, yeah, ne- negative conditions to these animals do not necessarily stop all breed. normal functions. It it yeah. doesn't mean um, they will still do their normal things even in terrible situations, terrible, stressful, I mean, inadequate situations. They will still often do their normal behaviours. I suppose there's, uh, there's so a bit of, it's a bit not of sense a, to you it can't judge their welfare on, on simple well, things. Just, just, just on that slightly, guys, and, and, and I just want to bring this in as well, because one of the first podcasts we did when I when I come on board with uh, with, with Reptile and Chill, we had From the Ground Up and um, Morelia Python Radio on, and I was, I, I'd, I'd bred some carpy pythons, and I was getting, uh, I was having some trouble with, with getting the young to feed, and they were sort of like, oh, take it for a car journey and we were like are you having a laugh and it's like oh, it we was laughing about oh. it but putting it in the putting and i did i thought you know what i've got nothing to lose i'm gonna i'm gonna put these young carpets in the tubs in the car i'm gonna take them for a drive around the block and do you know what it worked it worked about a female yeah. keeper i know that used to keep sandboas and she yeah. did similar sort of thing but what she did was she put the the tub with the baby sandboa on a wooden sort of board and she tapes a, a, a vibrator to it yeah <laughs> she put it on and that got this that induced the snakes to pee yeah those bully vibrators <laughs> mate i'm telling you what they're going off the shelves around my area now since i found out about that <laughs> so anyway so acute stress you know short-term stress it's context specific if you pick an animal up it's going to get stressed and the last thing it's going to think about is i'm going to be put down and mate with someone on the other so, hand, that, I mean, you, you, you male, could... it, its reproductive drive might go up. 
So you could bring in the um, the very unpopular opinion that um, s- some of the some of the most successful breeders keep in tubs in tiny. Well, this is this tubs. is what I'm leading on to, and this is this is uh, basically the crux of the argument, the point I'm about to make. So that's short term. Now, long term stress, chronic stress, logically and you know, quite, quite logically, basically, it should reduce breeding diet drive. And it does. There have been a lot of experiments that show that long-term stress reduces breeding drive in most animals. So when people say, oh, if they're breeding, that means that they're fine. It's not actually true, because what we're finding more and more, and there have been several studies on this, for example, by the Orian Society in the, the US, is that reptiles, and this is reptiles across the board, not just snakes, but for example, it's been done on green turtles, it's been done on marine and green iguanas, it's been done on garter snakes, rattlesnakes. What we're finding is that after periods of long-term stress, the -hmm. snake's reproductive drive isn't decreasing. On the contrary, in some cases, it's actually increasing. Mm -hmm. Now, biologically, that's completely sound. If you're in an environment where there are many stressors that Mm -hmm. are likely to affect an individual's ability to grow up to adulthood, in other words, if your offspring are likely to die in this environment, Mm-hmm. Then how more. do you, how do you compensate for that if you're produce more? If you produce more, produce yeah. more there's more. <clears throat> exactly. Yeah. If your goal is to produce more, uh, if, is to get babies to adulthood. You produce more. Well, also, so, as well, say for instance you're you're a male snake and you come across a female snake or whatever reptile, and you think, okay, shit, this environment's no good for me. I might die soon. Surely there's a there's I'm getting, a natural. You want to pass your genes on to to carry on your race, or almost if you know what I mean, to carry on your species. Um, that makes a lot of sense, really, um, it, for what you're yeah, saying. I mean, again, it's um, context specific. It may not occur across the board, but increasingly, it's what we're finding out with snakes that long-term stress doesn't seem to actually reduce breeding drive, and we know that increased corticosteroids in the blood doesn't necessarily stop these snakes reproducing. So when you've got it's eating, it's shedding, it's pooping, and it's breeding as indicators of welfare, okay, they, they, you know, obviously you'd want the animal to be doing all of these things if you're going to spend money in it or if you, you know, want to keep it alive. But they're not necessarily the best indicators of welfare. There are better indicators. Unfortunately, some of those indicators are either difficult to measure by observation. You'd have to check their blood serum, corticosteroid levels. You'd have to check their hormone levels in the blood. That's not something that every pet keeper can do, but it's something that pet keepers should be mindful when they are determining whether the animal is surviving or thriving. And again, it's a pretty hated expression nowadays. So, Francis, is is there some other key indicators that are easily that we can easily look for um, as 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 responsible keepers? Um, Gary Bateman has asked. so if a snake is stressed, is um, you know when you get snakes constantly move up and down the glass, almost surfing. Is that, yeah. a, is that a sign of stress? Um, that's what he wants to know. It may be. Um, it has not been interpreted as such by certain controversial figures, for example, Clifford Warwick. I'm not sure I agree. There are some snakes that like to move. And, you know, if you are waiting to see your snake move to feed it, which a lot of keepers do, a lot of keepers won't feed a snake until they can see that it's hungry and moving around, then maybe it's associated that with feeding. On the other hand, it, you know, if it's, still not learned because their actual spatial mapping is actually really keen. They're very, very good at, at mapping their environment. So they know that they can't get us like glass. If they're still um, doing that glass thing, then yes, it could be what's known as a stereotypia. Uh, it's basically a repetitive behavior 
that has no obvious goal or function that wouldn't occur in a normal animal in the world. And it's repeated. So it could be pacing, it could be glass surfing. So again, again, that's not in every that that's not in every case. Again, uh, yeah, it could does it mean it is. It, it's like when people walk into zoos and they see they see animals uh, doing some kind of behavior, again, pacing, and they think, oh, stereotypical behavior, I've learned this somewhere. Uh, not always. Doesn't always no, not mean all. that. Uh, no. Sometimes, sometimes an animal, even a snake or a lizard, will um, explore their territory periodically. Absolutely. Uh, just yeah. maintain and, that. And territory. you know what? Just just while you're saying that, I, I put cameras into my reptile room, and the things I've noticed now of an evening when I'm in bed, I can look at my camera and go, "Oh my word, look at them!" And they're moving around of oh, an yeah, evening. You know, I mean, right now, now as we speak, I'm watching <clears throat> a big samophis moving around its enclosure. I mean. It, you know, yeah. it's just it's better than yeah. so, so, so um, I, just, I just don't want any of the listeners to start going oh my god yeah, don't get my, 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 my snake's no, up no. against the glass no, no. Stressed. <laughs> it, they, no, Mac, not okay Matt Clark Matt Clark has just put a good comment of, on uh, uh, he says um, uh, maybe they can see a full room sized viv on the other side of the glass um, which which is obviously another another thing to go into um, you know maybe yeah. they could just see separate surroundings and just yeah, want to yeah. explore that yeah, I was going to lead into when we talk about corn snakes, which I know was the original question, but I, I wanted mm -hmm. to digress a little bit just to uh, explain what we're trying to avoid and what uh, and what we can do to prevent it. So if we go back to corn snakes, let's say that's the first example that I'm going to mention. So Gary Ferguson, um, who's worked intensively with UV, he's worked intensively with enrichment. Uh, he works at Sparshall College, I believe. And what he tried, so just one of the enrichment experiments he tried with corn snakes in particular was he kept some of the snakes over a six month period in a sterile minimalist setup. So basically just a hide, horizontal branch and a water bowl. And then he kept the rest of the snakes in a more enriched setup. So, more enriched setup. so the enclosure was the same size. It had a water bowl and the same hide, but it also had much more in the way of natural features, visual barriers, places mm -hmm. to climb, you know, almost like a sort of a little a mesh of branches put in there. Yeah. Now, you might think that that doesn't sound like much, but actually the difference between the two snakes was in, like incredible, staggering. And this is the first point that we need to make when it comes to people that keep snakes in sterile enclosures. The, the corn snakes that were kept in the sterile enclosure spent 98% of their time hiding. 98% of the observed time over the, that five or six month period, not moving, hiding, not doing anything else, just hidden in their in their hide because box. it because it felt less safe. Well, there there are other reasons, but there are there are various reasons. Francis, mm -hmm. can you define uh, where you're talking about a sterile tank? Are we talking about one hide with a bit of newspaper? That's right, and, and a heat source. Yeah, it, it had yeah, yeah. it had the, the the same heat source. One hide, it had a horizontal branch as it happened, just one branch, a water yeah. bowl, and paper, I believe. And the other enclosure had a substrate, which I think was a simple substrate, just chippings or something like that, and a much more in the way of things to climb, several hides, and a water bowl. So the sterile enclosure of snakes spent 98% of the time hiding. In the same space, over the same period, the snakes kept in the enriched enclosure were active for 35 to 38% of their time, which it doesn't sound like a huge percentage, but that's a third of their time was spent moving around 
when only 2% of the time of the sterile snakes was spent doing anything. Yeah, that's a, that's a huge difference. It's a massive, massive difference. And on top of that, um, about half of that time was spent with the snakes actually climbing and perching in view. Mm -hmm. Okay, so I'm going to play devil's advocate here. He loves saying that. How, how how can we how can we prove that the snake that is in its hide is isn't in a better position than the one that's travelling around its it, its tank looking for other places? If, you, if that makes sense, if, if, if you know what I mean. I'm just trying to. I'm just trying to. I'm just trying to. I feel there's two obvious ones to that. Like um, I think there's two obvious or, or or the biggest ones that I can think of is the one that's active is probably basking better. If it's got UV, then it's obviously getting more access to the UV because it's out more often, and also because it's climbing and active. It's it's keeping its body um, more healthy, you know, well, um, more physical, physically healthy. Oh yeah, I don't that, believe that, that UV was some... used in this experiment. In this particular one, I don't think they had UV. I'd have to check it. But you are right in that okay. one of the benefits is simply growth rate. We know that animals that are kept in rich environments actually exhibit a higher growth rate. Yeah. We, 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 we know that snakes we know can that. suffer from obesity. They can suffer yes. from muscle wastage, uh, just yeah, like so any other animal. Maybe at different rates and in different ways, but they suffer both of these things, just like any other animal. Yeah. Um, it's demonstrating a behaviour that we know from observing wild animals. It should be behaving. They're not. They are in. They are active, curious snakes. That's been measured, by the way, with by several other um, studies, like for example by Almli, Gordon Berghart. Um, they've all experimented on Pantherophis, you know, that, that genus of rat snakes before, and they've found mm -hmm. that they are curious snakes that map their enclosures a lot. They move around quite a lot. They shouldn't be keeping still. In the wild, they're not snakes that hide. They actually climb quite a bit, especially at night. If it's not doing that, it's not enacting its natural behavior. So this is one identifier that maybe the welfare isn't there. However, there are more concrete ways of checking that, which were expanded upon by later studies. Uh, for example, the ones I mentioned by Gordon Burkhart and yeah. Almy. So what they did, cool. um, they measured corticosteroids, for one thing, and they found that the serum corticosteroids in the snakes kept in minimum enclosures were higher. They had more stress hormones than those kept in enriched enclosures. That's one factor right there that you wouldn't be able to tell as a pet keeper unless you're going to a vet specifically to have blood drawn and tested. So that's one factor. But the other things are even more amazing. And, and so, I mean, I find it just amazing how much the difference in these animals' behavior is. So, for example, one of the things they tested was the snake's cognition, basically its ability to learn and remember. And I'm sure there are people all screaming, saying, no, they don't learn, they're instinctual. We're going to get to that too later on. But just, just to go on about the corn snakes, what they found was they tested the snakes in 12 exit mazes. What that means is there were 12 exits. 11 of them were blind ends or dead ends, and one was a goal hole, you know, it was actually uh, the exit. What they found was that not only did the snakes map the mazes really quickly and find the the goal hole, you know, they found their way out of their maze um, just after one try, they found that the snakes kept in the enriched environment did so quicker. So they, they actually found it quicker, they habituated quicker to the maze. They then, in later tests, remembered it more quickly. So each time that they did the test, they reduced the latency period towards the goal hole. In other words, they went through it quicker each time. Now, that doesn't sound like much, the fact that they've learned and remembered. But what you've got to realize is that a lot of people think that these animals are instinctual creatures, that they don't learn, they have no condition. 
this proves that that's not true because if they were just instinct driven they wouldn't learn the actual maze and they certainly wouldn't reduce the latency period that it takes to get to the actual goal hole they would just do it at random each time or they would take the same amount of time um yeah, def so definitely. Were... Just, just, just to put in a little bit there, mate. I must be conscious yeah. of time. There's loads of different questions I want to get across. Um, moving things forward, a question for Taron. I think if you're still there, you haven't fallen asleep, mate. You... <laughs> what? You there? You there? Still there? Right. Okay. So, we've got this corn snake. Um, obviously, you've got a shop called you know Bioactive Herb. So, someone comes to you and says, right, okay, I've got a a three foot or a four foot vivarium. I've got a heat source. I've got UV. What can I do to make my enclosure more enriching for my corn snake? Um, what can what what would you advise them? You know, through substrates and branches and what kind of thing. What would your advice be to someone? Uh, I think the some of the key things I normally tell people is that substrate depth. A lot of the time, you see enclosures that have about an inch worth of substrate in there. But the deeper you can get it, the better. So a lot of snakes do love digging down especially for uh, temperature gradients. Obviously, the deeper you go, the cooler it's going to be, so you've got much more spare gradient out there for it. Branches obviously make up most of people's enclosures. Uh, they're going to climb around all over the place for that. Uh, just different types of things that a lot of people like using live plants. It's not always necessary, but they certainly have a, a certain enriching uh, mode. I believe Francis has mentioned a few times before, uh, certain snakes are able to smell or differentiate between the, the uh, plants that they're in. Um, and, you know, there's, there's all sorts of different things. It's very personal to each keeper, I think, how they set their enclosures up. And, uh, as long as they've got various branches, uh, leaf litter as well, that's always a good one for burrowing into. Yeah, so obviously there's, there's other things that we can do as well, um, especially mainly... Um, maybe with monitors and that kind of thing, is that we can scent as well. So if we've got leaf litter or substrate, we can scent a, a, a food trail or something which gets the, the, the brains or the mind of the, of the reptile going. Um, you know, so these are different things that we can do, providing, you know, different platforms, different kind of textures, um, different surfaces. E even when it comes to your substrate as well, density of your substrates are having areas where it's really compact, where they're going to have to work to kind of like make tunnels or to, you know, to burrow themselves. Uh, or having it more loose where they can quite literally just get underneath it, encrypt it, bask. So these are the different things just off the top of my head that we can do to kind of like make this a better environment and make it more enriching for the, for the animal. Um, have you got anything to add to that, Ricky? Uh, so you've got <laughs> substrates, climbing. I'd actually like, you to, like to take that question back to uh, one that got missed. Uh, because somebody asked, uh, what would be an example of, of positive behaviours? Um, in an enclosure, rather than negative, or, or ones you yeah. can't really say one way or the other. Um, and these would fit with how the enclosure is designed like that. So positive behaviours can easily easily be uh, any kind of activity, a movement, any kind of being out of a hide. Uh, basking is a positive behaviour. Uh, reptiles come out and do this every day, multiple times a day, many times a day depending on the species and where they come from. Uh, so if you're providing, say, multiple basking spots at different levels with branches, maybe a bit on the floor as well with leaf litter, uh, being able to see them through the day basking all sorts of different spots, that's positive. That's them thermoregulating. 
and that's a yeah. good thing. It's funny you say that, Ricky, because I, I spoke I spoke about this the other day, and I saw a post about it. It was a video that a guy had got. It actually it was carpet pythons, and he'd got an internal enclosure, but it was also linked to outside. So we had an outside enclosure and an internal enclosure. Obviously, the internal enclosure was a lot warmer. But what he did say was that the that the carpet python was going outside to bask, even though it was yeah. colder. He was going outside to bask for a period of time. But so that, 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 that is, comes is, into the, the whole word of UV. Yeah, yeah, UV. and it, and and it comes into into thermoregulating. It doesn't just mean uh, gaining heat. Uh, it can also mean cooling down. Absolutely. It can yeah, also I mean, you've mean got to remember as well that these are poikilothermic animals. So yeah. thermoregulation, it's going to be the number one source of enrichment. And that's that's been found by Burkhardt and Ferguson. Thermoregulation is the single most potent form of enrichment for most of these reptiles that, have, that it's been studied at Sullivan. And I think I think we've we've also we've we've always gone along with saying though that we have a warm end and a and a, and a cooler end and, yeah. and you know that that's been going on for years and years and years yeah. way before and I was. And, and, yeah, and and I think sometimes people take that too bluntly as well. You have one end, and you have another end. Why not have a warm top and a cool bottom? Why not have yeah, a, a warm middle and and both and, and and it get cooler as it goes outwards rather than well, from one side to the other. Each as well, so the animal can yeah. choose whether it, it's a, it's hidden in the middle or on the warm end or the cool yeah. end. You can have um, you can because we know that reptiles can uh, regulate their UV intake differentially, you know, uh, independently from thermoregulating so from heat intake yeah so that's that's one of the most important things you can do if you're providing uv and it's something we keep hammering home uv that, is good it's important that's but that's you need to give I the animal the chance to well. not you know to not be under the uv and still warm itself up otherwise yeah. you're forcing it to be under uv when it doesn't need it you know because yeah. there is a limit and, I, and I'll be I'll be totally honest here, guys. Um, I've only just started after 26 years of keeping. I've just got the UV um, bulb that I'm going to put into the tanks, and 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 I'm going along with that just because quite a few people have now have just said, well, look, it's not going to harm them, and if no. it can benefit them, then then I'll go for it. But for if I'm honest with you, for 26 years, none of my snakes have suffered from not having uh, a UV. Um, bulbs, and I know you're going to say, yeah, but it had oh, they no. have, maybe they haven't had the right enrichment, this, that, and the other. No, no, I'm, I'm not, maybe not, I don't know. I can quite UV. happily explain this. You, you can, <laughs> I mean, I used to keep them without UV too. I mean, no, I only started keeping them with UV around 2004 to 2006, and back then it was still Grolux bulbs and the Zoomeds, you know, the cheap Zoomed bulbs. We didn't have the kind of UV technology now. Back then it was just experimentation. Yeah, and, and, and but, what everybody's got to re remember as well, when you start experimenting with these new technologies, you can actually go down the route of doing more harm than, than good right. if your bulb isn't right. And it's that releasing the, the wrong problems. type of yeah. yeah well, absolutely. That's where the being most of the whole stories stem it. from. There, I mean, we had we, there were stories of people using black lights, you know, to provide UV for their animals. Um, the old style bulbs used to emit UVC, which actually doesn't go into the atmosphere in yeah, any. It's horrendous. Probably, and it's extremely yeah. dangerous. So yeah. I, 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 um, I, I think it's well, one, it's one neither easy. that it's 
it's people not knowing how to use these these bulbs. But the the yeah. simple thing is now, and it's not their fault. It's not a problem if you didn't used to do something. That's fine. Absolutely. You've you've found out about it now. Now you, you can the knowledge read into it. About a decade old. You know. And and yeah, now we have things. That, Ricky, but there's going to be a lot of keepers who'll be going. I've been keeping so long uh, in a way that all my animals are healthy and I've bred them. And yes, all the things we've spoke about before. Yeah. 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 And, and why we, do we I change? We can logically explain uh, why their animals have essentially done fine, uh, but that that we, we can also figure out that they might have done fine, but, but they, they could have do done better. better. It, com- uh, yeah. we, we, it comes back to God the original argument, it, doesn't it? It comes back to the original argument <laughs> of <laughs> saying, "Well, it's shitting, it's breeding, it's shedding." Um, yeah, you know what you're saying earlier. So, some of that people, um, and again, I was a little bit naive and a bit stupid when it I first came across this whole UV thing, so. My argument was, well, what about overexposure to UV? You know, if I put you yeah. in a small, small oh. box with UV, you'll go mad. So, no, no, that's a good point. Yeah, and just, it's a just point having, that to touch yeah, on. Just, just having a UV tube, you know, in a normal kind of very sterile approach uh, setup, that isn't going to do anything. You, your snake's got nowhere to go. So by having this naturally enriching, naturalistic or pseudo-naturalistic style enclosure, where there yeah. is areas... Um, so I think there's something um, I, I always see as um, like mirrors bouncing around. So you've got, a, say, for instance, a 6% tube that bounces off the floor. The light then reflects and bounces off that branch. When it hits off that branch, it bounces again, and it gets each time it reflects, it gets smaller and smaller and smaller. And then when you're actually underneath that hide, you're getting probably minimum amounts of UV or no UV. So there's almost... Um, I don't know what the word is, but there's a, there's a gradient of UV in an enclosure that is set up correctly. Photogradient. A photogradient, yeah. Yeah, so if, yeah. You, if, you're quite I mean, li- if you're quite literally just putting a tube and then two foot below it is substrate and a water bowl, then don't, no, don't, don't, don't it do it. It might be enough yeah. if, if you are a diurnal, you know, sun-basting lizard. But you've got to remember two things. Firstly, UV isn't the only enrichment you have. I mean, if we're going to talk about enrichment, there's all kinds of enrichment. There's... Um, heat enrichment, light, you know, not just UV light, but just a photo period. That's enrichment. Um, because, you know, it's a deal cycle. Animals are programmed oh. instinctively to react to that. You've got um, olfactory enrichment, smelling things. You have environmental oh, yeah, look, enrichment, object it, enrichment, you know, just placing things in the environment. This you ties into what we do. That. This ties into what we do when, when we're teaching uh, younger people, students uh, at work, we believe massively in enrichment and not only for mammals and monkeys and things like that. No, we're, we're massive on enrichment for herbs. Mm. Uh, and, and the way we explain it when we ask students to create a piece of enrichment is we ask them to choose an animal first. And then we ask, what senses do this animal use a lot? And then we say, well, what sense do you want this piece of enrichment to uh, actually meet? What do you want this enrichment to make that animal do? There has to be an end goal to this enrichment. And yeah. that could be anything from a, a snake or a lizard. It could be sight enrichment. It could be scent, olfactory enrichment. It could just be something they can move on more than anything and make a movement that they don't normally do in the enclosure. Oh, God. You're all, you're, you're all in for it enrichment. now. You're all in for it. Roman's mm-hmm. making his way over to the live feed. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
But I think um, that I think that's right, and I think that's a good way to look at it as well, Ricky. Is is look at your animal. What senses have they got? And then how can we use those senses, or mo you know, what are they used for mostly in the wild? Yeah. And how can we incorporate that into uh, in, into captivity yeah. and, and, and give them that enrichment that way? And I'd like to remember also that, that, that I was going to say that, that you have to also remember that all the enrichment that we might give to mammals uh, for all these different senses and behaviours, even social snakes mm -hmm. and lizards do these things too. Uh, yeah, it's crazy you're saying that. I've just had a dog, as everybody who listens to the podcast will know. But the things I do with the dog to make sure he's got enrichment, he's on a different level yeah. to to I, the reptiles. Um, and I suppose that's wrong, really, isn't it? Staying on staying on UV just real quick, and and yeah. people saying that um, uh, they've kept snake for snakes for multiple years and haven't, you know, it's it's never Ooh. been a, an issue. I would like to to make one point that. A lot of the benefits from UV are completely invisible. Yes, you'll uh, yeah. never see them. Ninety percent. Well, not, not even that. You can see invisible difference in the snake's behaviour. You can absolutely, yeah. But so many, there's so many benefits to their internal organs and stuff like that that you will never ever see. Yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, yeah, and, yeah. and I think well, that's been the swaying word point for me. Um, <laughs> is, is the fact that. You know, like like you just said, Danny, there's so many things that you don't know about what's going on inside your body. If you're, if you're, I don't know, if it increases your metabolism or, you mm -hmm. know, you, you can fight diseases better. Yeah, I mean, we know on a whole that snakes um, aren't the best of, they, they don't have the best digestion if their care isn't spot on. So anything we can do to help with that digestion is, in in my opinion, right up there. Yeah, but it, it helps as well if we talk about, because we keep accosting the word UV and we keep pushing this towards people. And yeah, I honestly, I don't, blame, what it I, I, don't, I don't blame people for not, not for, for, for turning being, away because they're hearing yeah. UV and they go they're they're, they're going okay oh, so I, 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 might have, I might have heard <laughs> yeah. this D three thing before but is that it is that everything I'm I'm bored now well, no we we have to tell them that D three even though it's such an, an important part of the body it's actually mm. a very 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 small part of what UV can do to an animal yeah um, it, UV I mean I uh, think we need to go into UV some detail as to what the benefits of UV are. To yeah, understand it's, why it's necessary and why we push it. Um, well, it's so it's hard. not only it's not only UVB. UVA is massively yeah. regarded as, as a behavioural part of the spectrum. Well, yeah, it affects give, how lizards behave. Yeah, it affects what time of day yeah. they know it is. Increasing activity, hunting, eating, reproduction. Also, yeah. as well, I think one of the um, you've got to think how uh, when we go to hospitals and how they clean the uh, the theatre apparatus and whatnot. You know, they're using yeah. ultraviolet light to do that. So ultraviolet is all... it's antibacterial. Yeah, yeah, it's yeah. killing you, bacteria you, yeah. and that kind of thing. To, so it's almost a healing To explain property. that more, you, usually they use uh, UVC for that, for cleaning. But it is also proven that UVB has has a, uh, a, a antibacterial property to it. UVB can keep an enclosure, essentially cleaner of bacteria where that UVB is hitting. Uh, mm -hmm. It will destroy those cells and it will um, help one animal 
wounds while, heal. Yeah, while helping an animal's wounds literally heal hence why, and supporting hence why, their immune system. Hence why, in retrospect, you get ill so much more in the winter. Yeah, exactly. because there's seasonal depression. <laughs> well, and you get you get depressed in yeah. the winter too, and, yeah. and there's reasons for that. So I mean, when That's why when reptile keepers think about UV and its benefits, they're thinking from the, the point of view of the synthesis of vitamin D and metabolism of calcium. And that is the major thing that UV has done for reptile keepers historically, because lizards especially develop metabolic bone disease. Yeah, because they're so sun-dependent. Yeah. Well, what was the question? Why don't, why don't vampires have MBD? <laughs> Actually, I'd like to use that question and, and, and turn it to why don't snakes get MBD? Well, if well, we if and, and that's a big thing when we talk about oh, UV, right. we, we have snake keepers come up and say, well, why aren't my animals uh, having these issues when you tell me that my snakes bask the same as your lizards? Well, there are a few key things that we can we can say as why. Um, for one. Uh, there is D3 stored in the tissue and the liver and other organs of the whole prey yeah, that you're feeding your snakes. Mm -hmm, uh, mm -hmm. This may not be all of the D3 that the snake needs, but it may be just enough or going towards enough D3 to provide fairly decent uh, skeletal structure and growth, enough to look yeah. and be uh, healthy enough to survive, breed and do all those things. But that but doesn't mean it's enough. Up of snakes yeah. that haven't been given UV compared to those that have and they've yeah. shown massive bone, bone density it's a completely different bone structure yeah mm -hmm. and, and not mean, only that there is a recent study in the last year on uh, I believe it was uh, uh, god Burmese pythons yeah Kevin uh, where yeah, in the last year where they, they, they did put a bunch of uh, Burmese pythons under UV and another bunch not under UV over a long period of time. Um, and this found that the group uh, with the UVB had much higher, oh God, the words, cal, uh, cold calciferol uh, levels in yeah, their yeah. blood. 25 hydroxy vitamin yeah, D3. Just, uh, just to make you one. guys aware, yeah. time, um, you need yeah. to make sure you're talking absolute correct sense now because Roman's actually listening and in the chat. <laughs> uh, Hi, <so>. Ram. <laughs> we, brought him on, on, we brought him in on purpose to vet you guys to make sure that the listeners are getting exactly <laughs> what they need to know. He's going to call all the bullshit. Don't, don't worry, I, I will make sure to mention near and far are infrared heat. Oh yeah, we're going to get into that. But I mean, yeah. to, to go further into what UV does, mm. um, and, and this applies for snakes, it applies for monkeys, it applies for birds, it applies for you. So one of the benefits of UV, the, the, the benefit of UV that prevents metabolic bone disorder is that when it hits the skin, it, it, the epidermis of the skin, it photolyzes into, it photolyzes pro-vitamin D3 into pre-vitamin D3. Now, they're not actually vitamins, they're hormones. Now, when you've got pre-vitamin D3, there are two different pathways that can then occur. Firstly, it can isomerize into vitamin D3, which is yep. the stuff that you need, or it can photolyze to lumistrol or tachystrol, which are, and, and, in other words, and, it's a self-regulating process. You can't help too much of it. And, that's and you need to explain. You need to explain what that means. So, so what he means by that second one uh, is that UV literally breaks down D3 in the skin yeah. or pre D3, uh, D3 and pre D3. Uh, UV breaks down the same thing in the skin that creates vitamin D3. So it's uh, actually self-regulating. 
yeah, it means that there is never too much being created. It's constantly being created and destroyed in this game, constantly. Yeah, absolutely. Constantly yeah. under UV because it's being destroyed and created by essentially the same things, but varying uh, frequencies. Um, As opposed to synthetic and this, uh, D3. I yeah, mean, this that allows... just shows how clever reptiles are. <laughs> that well, not only reptiles, it's, it's all it's well, 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 all, it's, all animals. It's, it's most yeah. We do it. Yeah. That's the thing, yeah. we do it a lot, and, and there's quite a lot of evidence to show that a lack of D3 affects our psychology quite a lot as well. I mean, yeah. it, it was oh. less than 100 years ago that we, we used to get rickets, for example, I mean, because of a lack of sunlight. That was yeah. one of the one of the reasons. So well, anyway, a, lot, a lot of the things we find in reptiles and herbs uh, year on year, constantly finding new things. A lot of them are simply just finding out that they do what we and other animals exactly. do as well. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Increasingly, so, I mean, because increasingly they haven't been studied as much as higher animals. Or, I say higher animals, it, but it's it does, not as much it, mammals. It, it, I have seen, I have seen a slight change in the in the mindset in the hobby recently um, for years. The general consensus has been: do not compare reptiles with humans. We are completely different. Actually, yeah. no, we're the not. prize of anthropomorphism. Yeah, but, absolutely. But again, we're not. If you look at but... Gordon Berghart, he actually thinks that's one of the worst things for studying yeah. animal cognition possible, because the, the the fear it's almost a fear of anthropomorphizing these animals is preventing us from looking mm -hmm. objectively at what they're doing. We have to always assign them a how do I put it, a very scientific, a very non-anthropomorphic reason for doing things. Like these yeah. animals that can feel that they do actually have emotions. And, um, again, it's something I want to talk about later too. Oh, God, you're going to get no, Dan, to Agony on. Danny's going to be back on. <laughs> <laughs> ah! <laughs> the, the, the important thing about the fact that it is self-regulating, that this is the kicker, um, and this is the same for snakes as it is for, for lizards, because everyone's always very happy to give it to lizards, and yeah, very few people are, give it to snakes. We're but very different. We, we are we, we are very very different. However, there are a lot of um, similarities that that should be looked into in yeah. one way or another. Well, yeah, it's 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 the split. Uh, getting getting too caught up on anthropomorphism, which is a big problem. People should not treat these animals as though they are human with human qualities. No, but they're well, not robots either. Fear, yeah, this fear of uh, of using anthropomorphisms yeah, uh, ma ma makes us constantly think that they are such lesser animals that they don't do 90% of the things that we do whether psychologically or biologically but the truth is constantly coming out that we can't give them human qualities but most of the things we do they also can and do so just finishing up on UV the important the point about the self-regulation of this vitamin D3 in the blood because it self-regulates, we know that if you expose the animal to UV and the amount of vitamin D in the blood goes up, then before that, the animal by necessity was suffering a lack of D3. It was, it was suffering from hypovitaminosis. That's a bad thing. I mean, that, that's a health issue. So when people say they're just fine without it, no, they are suffering from a lack of this important pre-hormone. You know, it, it's as simple as that. If it goes up under UV and it didn't have it before, the fact that UV regulates itself, that, that this process regulates itself, means that it didn't have enough in its system beforehand. Mm -hmm. So that's something that I think a lot of snake keepers need to take on board. And, and this has been done on a lot of different species of snake and, and shown that they do also benefit immensely from UV. 
And not only snakes, we, we find this a lot in things like gecko keepers oh, that, have, that, that have found that since, since, since correctly, and I mean correctly not only using UV, but correctly using it, has, has dramatically lowered um, the, the, the show of things like impaction, as it comes up as, because UV does actually support the digestive system and it's healthy Absolutely. working. Yeah, and it increases um, activity. I mean, that's the other important activity. thing. Yeah. That's the imp other important effect <laughs> of UV that is always overlooked, is that it's very strongly tied to the melatonin-serotonin cycle, as well as the production yeah. of V3. So melatonin is extremely important hormone produced under and, UV and, uh, that, and, that regulates again. activity and the circadian rhythms. It reduces stress. I mean, the hormone itself is a stress reducer. Um, it regulates the sleep-wake cycle, so it makes the animal active when it should be and lets it sleep. Lack of melat melatonin is a bad thing as well. Yeah, and it's probably why I go. sleep terribly. It's even been uh, layman's terms. You know, it's not just snakes. Can yeah, I ask good. a question from a layman's terms? And um, sure. I see, like, obviously, we've spoke about lighting and enrichment, this, that, and the other, and, and, and I totally agree with the enrichment within your tank and 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 or your vivarium. Um, I keep mine sort of like naturalistic, so I don't go by bioactive. So oh. I put a substrate down, a hide, some branches. I like to put um, some false plants in there because I think it makes it look nice which also oh, okay. gives them a hide as well and some bark. Um, and for me, that gives them everything that that my snake should need. Now, I, I am going towards the sort of like UV side of things now because I think, well, it's not going to harm them. And if it can benefit them, brilliant, I'll do that. But the there is, that's sort of like, I only keep carpet pythons, but there is certain animals out there that absolutely 100 percent need uv this is which so I, I just want to make sure that people are aware that okay i'm keeping a said animal this animal 100 percent needs uv this one doesn't 100 uh percent -huh. no. need okay. it i think it's, well, it might how, it. it's how your mindset is so yeah. these these animals come from outside they don't naturally belong in wooden boxes we naturally belong outside. We don't belong in brick houses. You know, if we're looking at things from a biological point of view, they do need that full spectrum lighting. We, you know, we, well, we do need it. Need I was it. Point was, I'm trying to get out to the listeners that that. Yeah, Mark. Um, so back to geckos. Yeah. The the whole the whole argument that I've had a million times, and that I I know. I know Ricky's had it. I know Francis had it, and I um, I know damn well Taryn's had it. If if your gecko or any animal animal, I'm sticking with geckos for now. But if your gecko needs D3, then it needs UVB. The whole yeah. the whole theory and the whole reason for D3 it's was to give them something in exactly is to give well, them yeah. what they don't they work together? Uh, no, that that no, could that no, comes they do the no, same no, thing. Uh, uh, Dietary D3, unless unless this animal is eating entire other animals, dietary mm -hmm. D3 is not really a factor in their wild or, or natural lives. Uh, no. um, say a gecko that isn't eating uh, rodents or other geckos would only really be eating probably inverts and fruit, which so, contains either uh, micro amounts or no D3 whatsoever. Yeah. So, well, so what, in, in, in layman's, it, 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 D3... It supplements UVB. 
that's what it's doing. It's, no, it's well, well, no, no. Uh, dietary D3, diet, dietary D3 is so unnatural to most animals that it does not have a regulatory process it can't regulate how it's used or how much of it is used um no, so what the body the, does the so, so what the yeah so what the body does instead is it stores that d3 and it only does mm-hmm. that with dietary d3 things that it's eating with yeah. these that includes what you're supplementing on its mm-hmm. food mm-hmm. you don't know how much d3 you're supplementing that animal and any excess d3 that goes through the digestive system alone will be stored in the body or passed out but some of it will be stored and it will be stored in the fat of that animal for a very very long time and that will build up and that does create a negative issue that has been seen in some animals that have been yeah. over supplemented and that is uh, mm-hmm. hy- uh hypervitaminosis d3 um yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, going back and, to Mike's original, that can actually that can actually yeah. show the same symptoms as metabolic bone disease. Yeah. So how well, do we know in that? The past? Just, just going back to metabolic Mike's original bone point, is... yeah, we've, we've gone off a ta- yeah. on a tangent a little yeah, bit. I'm <laughs> just conscious of time a little bit. So going back to Mike's yeah. original point, yes, <laughs> your pythons or your corn snakes or whatever or your that mine, the listeners I'm, I'm talking yeah, yeah, just, yeah. It's, it's generic and yeah they, they probably are doing okay without this uv or full spectrum lighting however you know we we do have a responsibility to do our very best so if you have the capability and the means to provide something that you know, and it has been proven through science that it is beneficial to them. Then I think we owe that to the to the animals. Now, if if you don't, it's not something you need to go. Oh my God, I'm the worst reptile keeper in the world. That's not no. a problem. We all no. learn. No. We're all at different stages. That's fine. And and, and my my point was, um, there's certain reptiles that absolutely 100% need this. Am I right yeah. or wrong? Yeah, yeah, yeah absolutely. So, so absolutely, oh, your lizards yeah. that are out in the day are absolutely absorbing that from the sun. They need mm-hmm. this, and it's and, and not only that, that that list also includes in- insectivorous snakes that uh, yeah. have well, no well, other way to obtain the reason mm-hmm. that they are so difficult, or they're seen as so difficult to keep in captivity, and that they're so short-lived. It's what you One hundred percent, I get that. Yeah. So, uh, what? My point was, I just wanted the listeners to hear that, yes, there is animals out there that can survive without it, but there is also animals that out there that absolutely 100% need it, and, and you yeah, need to make sure yeah. you've got them requirements set up before you have that animal. Yeah, and something I want to I want to put out there as well is I don't want the people that are listening or reading the things that are written I don't want them to believe us completely. That's fair. You shouldn't believe every single thing you hear or read. Go and research yourself. Yeah, and and not only that, I don't want to also just say go and research, go and Google it because I want to actually point them to decent pieces of of impartial information. So what I'll say for the UV side is go on Google, but Google this. How much UVB does my reptile need? That mm. will come up with a page um, from the Journal of Zoo and Aquarium Research, completely free, uh, written uh, in part by uh, Francis Baines and many other very Gary good Ferguson people. Well. Gary Ferguson is also included and many other people from a lot of zoos and a lot more. Uh, and that paper can be downloaded as a PDF and includes an immense amount of layman terms information 
of how to provide UV to your animal, including uh, what in the wild most captive animals actually need. It has a massive list of species and wild co uh, collected data. Can I jump in as well? Because I know there's a misconception of people having tanks next to big glass windows and going, yep, oh, um, yes. I don't need. So, so do you want to oh, just yes. elaborate uh, a little bit on that? Absolutely. Uh, so uh, to understand how UV works is that it's, it, it's it's part of light. Light includes all sorts of, uh, of frequencies and sizes sizes of wave. Uh, so any kind of surface that is the same or, or or doesn't allow a certain and wavelength of light to pass through, that light won't go through it. That includes UV and glass. Uh, normal household glass, UV doesn't penetrate at all. It, it stops it dead completely. Uh, you put your reptile next to the window, you can hold oh. your beardy up to the glass as close as you want. It is getting, getting no UV. Sorry, we I are on. Roman already commenting about the, the other facets uh, I, of light, different wavelengths. And he's right, that also um, is a very important part of enrichment as well. It's not just UV, yeah, so we do get hung up on yeah. UV. Can I just yeah. read that out for the for the listeners as well? So Roman Murin just put, don't get hung up on the need of UVB just for D3. It's important, oh, yeah. but there are other aspects of the full light spectrum. They also matter. So infrared is just as important, both double their value, um, basically. So what he's trying to say is that the whole spectrum is important. Yeah. So li light intensity, so high, high lumens and yeah. that kind of thing. So so he's not, uh, what, what he's on about as well is uh, things like infrared. So the actual heat that's being provided to that animal and how yeah. it's being provided and what, what type should, of what heat that is. what we should do is, is we'll, we'll save that for another podcast. We'll see if Roman's yeah. listening. Um, let me know if you're up for it, but we can kind of get maybe <laughs> Roman he... and some of you guys back on to actually let's, let's do a podcast on the full light spectrum. Yeah, and that and kind he of is thing. absolutely right. There are other things, and heat is extremely important. Well, and light in terms of where that heat comes from, visual spectrum. We'll leave it there for the moment with the um, the enrichment side of things because I feel like Taron's kind of sitting there uh, rocking backwards and forwards a little bit. He's more likely sitting there twiddling gone. something he can't name yeah, and getting so, quite, uh, quite happy. He's, uh, he's sitting there mixing his substrates. That's what he's doing. Yeah, he's sitting there mixing them all together. <laughs> right, okay, so I want to I want to talk about um, obviously we've We've spoken about enrichment. We spoke how we can possibly um, provide more enrichment, whether it be through the parameters of, of, of light or different heats and substrates and branches and plants and da 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 da, da and all that. So a lot of these things, and there's kind of a trend these days that people are keeping bioactive. Um, and for, for our listeners' uh, sake, Taryn, could you explain what bioactive is, please? Uh, yeah, well... Bioactive is basically <clears throat> creating a pseudo-functioning ecosystem. Uh, the aim is to create a system that breaks down waste and changes it into a plant food, basically lets your plants grow. They're obviously releasing decent amounts of oxygen in the atmosphere. And it's just a cycle. Obviously, I say it's a pseudo version because it is a small enclosure. They're really compact. You're never going to get a perfect setup. Uh, but we do aim to get to that. So it's using various mic uh, bugs, uh, microorganisms, things like that to help break waste down and improve. Yes, it's more about improving the uh, system for the keeper 
than the animal itself. But who's making that horrible clacking it, it, sound? It's Rick. He's typing away like a good yeah. and he needs to mute his phone. He needs to mute his typewriter or something. Well, I'm gonna, I can expect it to go. I'm just here waiting for the ding. So Tara, my keyboard Carry on, Taron. You was you was you were saying about your your bioactive and and how it's set up and and basically you're trying to get the bugs in there to deal with <laughs> the other bugs. Don't let yeah, them so overcomplicate it, my love. A lot, a lot yeah. of the time you see online people just kind of equate it to you throw your bugs in, they eat the poo, everything's done. I don't believe that. I believe there's a lot more to it, and you are trying to create an ecosystem in there. So you need you need your bigger bugs that you would like that are breaking waste down quite quickly. Okay, so there's, there's, a, there's a bit of a cycle, isn't there? So is, is it, I believe it's called the phosphorus yeah. cycle. Um, mm-hmm. so we can talk about that. I think for me, the nitrogen my, cycle. Yeah, so my my um my basic understanding is, um, animal, so I don't know, snake poos, the bugs eat the poo, the bugs then eat the bugs poo, and then that breaks down into the soils or the substrates, and then the plants absorb it. It goes up into the air, yada yada, and and that's kind of mm-hmm. how it works. Um, so do you want to go into into detail in that? Uh, but obviously, a lot more de- descriptive than I just waffled on. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, well, one of the things you also miss there is the, the microbes within the system. So obviously your bugs are eating the poo. And uh, at one of the Drayton Manor meets we went to uh, earlier this year, Mary uh, Pinbrook from Pals actually yes. did a talk. And they Lovely said they looked into what's coming out of these bugs. And a lot of it is basically just moulds and fungi and stuff. And you're just pumping that back into your system. So without having the the microbial side of things in your system, you're basically just creating stench. Uh, in the old days, when people used to keep dart frogs and day geckos bioactive, that wasn't a problem. They all used yeah. to collect from outside. Uh, all the bugs were in there for it, and they did get quite nice cycles. But these days, we see a lot of people with the bearded dragon trying it. Now, that's mm-hmm. orders of magnitude more waste every time it goes to the toilet. So we need to consider the system itself and how well it's actually functioning. Uh, and, and would you say there, Tarrant, that it, it make sure that it's beneficial to your animal that you've got? If you're going to go yeah, bioactive... The, day, the most important thing you need to do is care for your animal, whether yeah. that is in a sterile enclosure, a naturalistic enclosure, whatever, you've got to set it up for the animal rather than trying to get a nice, pretty, bioactive setup that the animal's just going to get an RI and die within three weeks. Definitely. I, th- I think, again, it's, it's more important to... The bioactive side of things maybe is to make things easier for you, so you have to do less cleaning. It is, yeah. Uh, um, I, 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 I don't currently keep bioactive. Um, since I've moved into this house, I haven't got, got around to doing it all yet. You didn't know, you did, didn't you try a little bit with uh, some of your white lips? No, 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 no. I've got, uh, it's all planted. There's, it's yeah, you planted, didn't you? Yeah, it wasn't I, I don't, I don't want to give Karen the money. Um, I don't want to buy spring tiles <laughs> off him, so uh, <laughs> that's basically what it is. Um, so, what what I used to do um, was basically, I used to use uh, two different species of spring tiles, various different wood lice, millipedes, and other bits of isopods and whatnot thrown in there. Um, and I used to find that 
it would take quite a while for them to, to digest all of the, the feces and whatnot. So what yeah. I used to do is I used to take out the bulk and then leave the yeah. rest for them to kind of like, you know, it, it saves me having to replenish that substrate every now and again. And this is something I, I speak to a lot of our customers about as well. Uh, again, there's, there's a myth that seems to have perpetuated where you've chucked your bugs in and that's it. You're bioactive, you're done. But I say, as long as you see a poo, you pick it out. You don't have to be all fastidious and clean up and everything. The bugs will get what's left over. But at least you're taking out the bulk of it, and that's going to stop a lot of disease spread and stop stinkiness. I mean, my tortoises, when they go, absolutely hum. So I want to get that there as well. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, that, so, that, Karen, in, in a bioactive tank, what animals would you keep? As in, technically anything. Technically anything. So if you, you could potentially keep a Burmese python on bioactive. If Realistically, you provide that. yes, you could. Yeah. Yeah. If, you, yeah, if you've you got the depth of substrate, you, you, know, you want to give it two, three foot worth of substrate and you give the room for the amount of isopods and bits and pieces that can actually handle that giant turd, then that's fine. But you still yeah, need to, can be, done. You still oh, need can to be, be removing done. it. A hundred percent. And we know that because that, that was what happens in in the real world. But we're not yeah. keeping in the real yeah. world. We're keeping yeah. we're keeping in captivity. No, so what Tarrant's so, 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 so what Tarrant's saying is is remove the remove the worst of it. Yeah. Yeah. The cleanup crew is yeah. there to finish it off. Well, th there's Absolutely. more than that as well. Th there's more than that. There's a lot of mistakes that this this uh, new age bioactive bandwagon has caused. Yeah, it's and it's not a bad thing. <laughs> it's, it's honestly not a bad thing. And Taran, Taran uh, can support all of this because we've we've argued about it enough together. Is that bioactive is great. But a lot of people do it wrong, and they follow it wrongly. They they uh, they don't consider things like uh, phosphorus buildup and, and 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 cycle. They don't consider other things in the soils. They don't consider that, that a lot of bioactive tanks are too wet, far yeah, too wet. Of anaerobic yeah, bacteria yeah. in the soil. Yeah. Uh, they they're not taking into account that to have um, an ongoing bioactive uh, enclosure, you can't let that soil become anaerobic with the bacteria in it you have to turn it and get oxygen in that soil otherwise it is completely not doing what you want it to do yeah it might even Worms be building up more waste yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, i think that danny said to me the once um and actually think he said it quite a few times that keeping bioactive might actually be more complicated and harder than keeping pseudo naturalistic or sterile. Oh, well, that's the, that's where doubt, that's where the that's where the divide comes in uh, there between are so many naturalistic. Yes, yeah. but between naturalistic and bioactive, uh, these are two different things, and none of us will sit here and tell you do bioactive because God, no, that is not the first step you should do. The first, no, absolutely not. I mean, I think bioactive can be an amazing way of keeping. It can be fantastic. I think that it's more suited for smaller animals in larger enclosures. For example, yeah. dark frog, great. Small lizards, yeah. even small snakes. When you start mm -hmm. using Burmese pythons, that's when I start doubting more. I mean, maybe yeah, you, you, know, you need a football pitch then to do it. Actually, you know, it all depends how big you would like to be using the size of enclosure for a Burmese python <laughs> that is yeah. going to probably deal with that level of waste. I mean, not just the poop. The amount of urine those things produce. I mean, it's like a gallon of <laughs> the urine. Yeah. This, 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 yeah. this, this is where... 
Yeah. This, this is where you obviously haven't been to Birmingham, mate, because our, our wood lights are the size of Mini Coopers, mate, over here. So I'm perfectly fine. That's pollution for you. If you step across the border into Sutton Coalfield, they're, they're much smaller and uh, we don't have need for them. Yeah, just, 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 while, Thank you. just bringing it slightly up, off topic for a second, um, and whilst we're on, on the subject of Birmingham. So we've, we do have a bit of a dilemma on this podcast at the moment. There's a bit of an elephant in the room. So obviously... Danny Wells is the Norfolk <laughs> Hobbit, um, but there's another. There's another. Call hobbit. me a fucking elephant. <laughs> <laughs> I know what you're going to say as well. Yeah, the, there is. There is another <laughs> Hobbit on this podcast, and that is Ricky. Um, well, now I need. Uh, to, I need to, a, to, to know, a giant. Everyone is a Hobbit. Yeah, so I. I need to know who's the real Hobbit. Who's the real Hobbit? Uh, Ricky, you can fight, have it, mate. You uh, can have it. Fight me at Doncaster. <laughs> yeah, no habit. Honestly, look. The last time you the said first that... time I'm ever backing down from a fight, habit. Genuinely, yeah. The last time you said that in my in my presence, are you you ended up getting smacked around the head with a snake hook. Uh, oh, that that was that was not fair. <laughs> <laughs> that was not very nice. Pretty sure my Lynch, hands were full. Just put best pole player in the world, <laughs> Luke Harris. Has. <laughs> right, <laughs> I'm, I'm going to bring you back because I do want to cover with the bioactive as well. Uh, go back to the when when people think the bioactive means that you don't have to do much. Well, I, I totally disagree, and yeah, I do. I, I show this at work. We have we have quite a large bank of bioactive enclosures at work for uh, th- three different species of uh, tree frog. Uh, and gargoyle geckos and crested geckos uh, a lot of people have found issue with these in in like a college workplace where they think oh students need to be need to be having jobs with this how is bioactive helping these students do jobs well you should see when these students work, walk into a lesson with me i'm having them clean poo off all of those leaves i'm having them trim dead leaves and prune mm-hmm. and take cuttings for new plants i'm having them take a spoon and a fork <laughs> And turning that substrate so it doesn't you know, become anaerobic. Do, do, do you know what? Yeah, the annoying thing no, still I, do, I, and, do. And spot clean to keep these enclosures going. Yeah. They are not a perfect system. And, 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 and that is sorry. I get in bio tanks geckos. They just shit on the glass. Yeah. Oh god, yeah. My oh, bio god. systems do nothing. Do it too. They're excreting all day long and like staining your nice clean glass. We had a Nico the other like, week. Why are you doing Ollie's... that there? You're supposed to be doing it into the soil so it can all be absorbed. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> we had a good channel on, on the podcast the other week, guys, and what Nico said is, and he was absolutely right, in, perf- in a perfect environment, we could all keep bioactive if we was very, very rigid and regimented and we would do this and that, but we're not. We're lazy animals. So we will let that go. We are. We're, it's yeah. 100% we are lazy. Now, if you've mm-hmm. got the right type of creature in that right environment, I think they're the most beautiful tanks to look at. When you oh, see bioactive set up properly and I go, wow, and I would absolutely. love to be able to do that. Yeah, absolutely. Got... I, have, I have two of them right in front of me. Yeah. Well, and and, and if, you've got, if you've got 10 tanks 
and or 10 vivs and you've got a full-time day job and you've got kids you love your animals don't get me wrong you will not have the time to spend to make sure they are kept in the right environment and and nico was absolutely right we are lazy creatures and we need to make sure that we are doing the best for the creature we're looking after so the creatures we've got we need to look at right okay how much time can i spend with this animal and what can i do to provide for it and in the right way if it is naturalistic or whether it's um bioactive i mean god blimey i would love all my snakes to be in bioactive um big enough enclosures to to be able to hold bioactive tanks for them and for me to be able to have the time with them. But in a real world, we haven't got that. No, not just that. I mean, the one thing that I think listeners need to take away as well is that, yes, bioactive, it can be amazing. Yeah, naturalistic is a great way of keeping it. For me personally, I keep everything naturalistic or bioactive. However, enrichment isn't restricted to naturalistic or biologic no, oh god yeah yeah i mean if you look yeah. up uh, frank three Weeks, hides in your tank well frank oh, well. Weeks, for example came up with a, an amazing um way to simulate crevices for uh cliff dwelling monitor lizards you know the smaller oh. australian monitors and it, it's become known as the reed stack all it is is a bunch of pieces of wood nailed together at different levels that the monitors can squeeze into um, at different distances from the uv and from the spotlights yeah, um, and, and now, the fun thing is, something like that is so ap- applicable across the board. We've yeah, been I trying mean, that, to build a Reti stack for fire-bellied newts, yeah. for God's sake. I, I would go as far as to say that's far more <laughs> enrichment than whether or not you've got springtails in your enclosure. Unless, of course, the animals mm. are eating the springtails, in which case that's great for them too. But you see, that that's thermoregulation. As I said before, we've shown that it's extremely uh, potent form of enrichment for reptiles. If you can vary the way that reptiles thermoregulate, that is a very strong form of enrichment, and it doesn't need a speck of soil or a springtail or a plant in sight. Yeah. So that's one great example yeah, of absolutely. So, without bioactive uh, or naturalistic. An example of that with 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 saying that yes, we're talking about naturalistic but naturalistic and bioactive a huge amount, but. We don't do everything like that at uh, the college collection. We have bioactives and we have naturalistic. We also have quite a few snakes that are living on aspen and a bit of orchid bark. But we think about how we can enrich their lives. We have things like a a hog nose that actually does live on aspen because we have to show these different types of substrates to the students and how to use them appropriately. But that snake still has UV. That snake still has a halogen heat source and is able to uh, properly thermoregulate. Um, that and snake is provided. Burrow, is yeah, it can burrow. Of <laughs> and yeah, and, and and it's it's provided different bits of enrichment, and often students are allowed to think about that and apply that themselves. That might even be uh, walking into another part of the collection, grabbing a fabric bag. <clears throat> grabbing the the toilet area of a hamster's enclosure and jamming it into that bag and chucking it in that nose's enclosure for five minutes touch yeah. a few bits of the enclosure take it, it out it go sit and watch it go <laughs> yeah, absolutely I mean, crazy and have a little yeah. bit of you stress which show just enriches its life so much you will see I mean, there are zoos that do much the same thing with burmese and reticulated pythons it was written up i think it was by cheng and zen lee that uh, they, they do the same thing, putting used tea bags or 
uh, basically bags full of rabbits, uh, you know, like uh, shavings from a rabbit hutch. They, they bag it yeah. up, they put it in the enclosure, and they watch the snakes go wild. It's the, it's the <laughs> yeah, absolutely. principle. Oh no. <laughs> I know what's coming. <coughs> oh good lord. Wow, that... thanks guys. How do you know that? Hello. <laughs> oh. I wanna see that shit. This is not bad. <laughs> <laughs> you will break it, Dana. I hate you. <laughs> I want Francis and Ricky to have an argument about it. I don't think we would argue, to be honest. I'm pretty sure we agree. Oh. <laughs> well, Man, it would be quite a fun Come thing. You know what's really funny? Is... Um, I've actually had my <laughs> microphone on mute for the last five minutes, so I'm going to uh, quickly just... I did that earlier. <laughs> Uh, okay. so, just there is a big difference here in that Francis has done a lot of a lot of field herping, as well as his own studying in the right. wild. Okay. Whereas I, I, I'm, just... a ca I'm a captive keeper. Okay. I've done let me just in captivity. Let me just repeat part. that question because I'm a fucking idiot and I muted my mic. Um, yes. So moving things forward, let's talk about wild recreation and yep. how we can use field herping to better our captive keeping. So using the information from microclimates and that kind of thing. I'm hoping I only muted my mic for about two, three minutes at that point. Else, um, there's going to be a really, really funny editing. No one missed it, mate. No one it was missed only you. Jen said, what's going on? I can't hear shit. <laughs> <laughs> so Jen owes us a pound. Can you, hear, can you guys hear me? Yeah. Yeah, apparently that's that, a, uh, yeah. always one of these. It's been recorded. It's cool. <laughs> Don't worry, Jennifer. Yeah. <laughs> right, okay. So uh, Saskia said that's better as well. Yeah, so, so Fra Francis, if you'd like to... Obviously, you've done, done quite a bit of um, field herping. So let's let's talk about perhaps some of the uh, species of Gibraltar that you've kept. Um, how has seeing their, their natural environment helped better your keeping and what have you taken from it? Is Francis there? Yeah. I can't hear Francis. I, I can hear Francis. It's on you lot. No, we can't hear Francis. Francis, can you do me a favour, mate? Can you... Exit the chat and, and we'll bring you back in because I can't hear you. On the Facebook chat, on the messenger chat. Don't have him back. Don't have him back. Ah, so peaceful. That is horrid. Oh, okay, so we can all talk now, guys. You were absolutely right in what you said, Ricky. Uh, um, it's a shame that Francis couldn't join that uh, that discussion, but that was brilliant. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, <laughs> Can you hear me now? Yeah, <laughs> I can hear you. Taron, are you there, mate? Yeah, I'm here, mate. Right, okay, no problem. Just making sure we're all on. Right. in the corner. <laughs> right, okay, then. So, so um, Francis, question. yeah, crack on, mate. Enjoy yourself. <laughs> oh, you're off for it. 
Um, I'm not going to recap all about uh, my childhood uh, uh, and all that, stop, uh, yeah. as I did that in the last podcast. Just, just stop but... you there really quickly. Um, it's not Francis. Apparently, it's Michael Gove. <laughs> so, Michael okay. Gove. Continue, Stu- Stuart Goff said it. I don't, I don't know. <laughs> um, <Call him. laughs> who said it? Uh, Stuart Goff. So, so it's not Francis. It's Michael Gove. I don't even know who that is. Is it my soothing voice? It could be. I'm guessing Michael Gove sounds like a gimp as well, then. (laughs) (laughs) So, I suppose my perspective is a little bit unique um, among UK keepers, maybe. Not not certainly among global keepers, in that I grew up seeing a lot of these animals in the wild first. So, I wasn't sort of buying corn snakes or leopard geckos from pet shops. I was catching my own um, reptiles in Gibraltar, where there was no pet trade. There were no pet shops. So I basically had to go out and find my old animals. And then that sort of snowballed onwards. So I've gone out and I've done a small amount of research in the world. I've traveled quite a lot um, through Africa. Now I'm starting to go through Asia quite a lot. And I've been to most of Europe. So I've had the, luckily, I've been very lucky enough to have the chance to see a lot of the animals in the wild. And when I was keeping, what I was doing wasn't just bringing the animals back. I was also bringing things like plants that I found with the animals, I was bringing back soil, you know, just everything that I could find where I caught the animal. How much that actually affected their upkeep, I don't know. I mean, I'm not going to say that it was essential to their care, but it certainly started me off on the idea of trying to replicate their environment, you know, because obviously a lot of these animals, I didn't know what they were at the time. In the, in the 80s, there were no field guides until the Collins field guide came out. So I was just guessing at what I was keeping or using Spanish names, for example. So, personally, one of the things that attracts me to keeping reptiles is that I like to keep animals that I've seen in the wild as much as possible. Of course, that doesn't mean I've seen all the animals I keep in the wild, but I've seen a fair few of them, and I tend to gravitate towards being excited by buying animals that I've, that I've actually seen, simply because that experience lets me sort of have a better idea of how they might fit in the environment they live in. Um, so, for example, if I see a horseshoe wit snake, you know, I've grown up finding them. I know exactly the kind of environments they live. I know the kind of heat they like. I know when it gets too hot for them to not come out or when it's too cold for them not to come out. And that expresses itself in the way that you keep them. I mean, I think it's just a natural process. Nowadays, we've got a lot more knowledge, a lot more equipment that we can take with us. We have cameras. We have solar meters. We have thermal guns. You know, you can point at a a piece of rock and see exactly how hot it is, you know, the surface temperature that they're basking at. Not and to mention that... the keyboard warriors. <laughs> okay. Ooh, we've got keyboard warriors now as well, so everyone knows. Like me and you. <laughs> and John, John Campbell, he got Carry on. John Campbell got oh. accused of being a keyboard warrior quite recently. Oh, oh he's one himself and he knows it. He, he is. Looks... Oh, uh... Keyboard ninja. <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, it's basically just things that you can use to give you ideas on how to keep the animals. I'm not saying it's essential for keeping them. I mean, all of the common species that we keep, we keep them and breed them because they are extremely adaptive. They can put up with stresses that maybe more delicate species couldn't. They can deal with living in a tub, for example, or living in a viv that isn't set up to quite the temperature specifications that they might use in the world. And conversely, a lot of the delicate species that are in the hobby or not in the hobby are not in the hobby because we, we don't keep them maybe to the exact specifications they need. 
So it's it's less important for things like a bull snake or a corn snake, which are hardy animals that can deal with wide ranges of temperature, that can deal with wide variances in light, in heat, and survive quite well. It's not the same as keeping, say, a Gastrophobus prezina, you know, one of these uh, tropical green keel scale lizards or uh, Stenophis, one of these weird Madagascan snakes, that you would need to know more accurate information. So there are a few bits of equipment. I mean, obviously, there's not everyone is going to be able to go out to the world and see things, but the way things are in the world today, package holidays are pretty cheap. You can go and see animals in the world. You know, a lot of people do. You know, a lot of my friends can uh, can go and see this. So some of the pieces of equipment that you might want are basically pieces of equipment that you would have anyway as a reptile keeper, and they translate really well to being able to look at environments in the world. So a thermal gun. I mean, you can get them for like £2.50 off Amazon or, you know, £10. You point it, click, and you can get an accurate temperature reading of whatever surface you're pointing it at. So, so I mean, Francis, mm. do you try and keep all your animals exactly how they are kept in the wild? I try and offer all my animals a choice, and I think that is the most important thing in keeping, especially with animals that you don't know the exact requirements of. Right, so, so just to put in there quickly, I remember talking to you about coach whips. Um, yeah. Now, if I, when you first told me the basking temperatures that you have kept these coach whips at, and the temperatures that you have um, witnessed them live, um, live or in, in obviously in the natural yeah. environment, that really shocked me. So could you share that with the listeners? And quick, so, uh, quickly I mean, before um, you, you carry on. Taryn, if you can't hear anyone, if you quickly drop out of the chat and then come I back in. Right. Yeah, I've just told him. Okay, no <laughs> he, he, might, he might have been being so sarcastic then. <laughs> I can only hear Francis. Well, is there anybody else? I know everyone else has kept really quiet. Sometimes, if I'm honest with you, Francis, that's a good sign because that means people are interested and that, that, that and they can they can uh, they're they're, they're taking in what you're saying. You're not really you're sure. on the opposite side of that. Are you they're sure? Are we... and they're talking about yeah. something yeah. else. Yeah. Sorry, I have scorned out at some skinks. And, I'm just uh, sat here eating stuff. Yeah. We, we, we need a podcast with Francis and Julian Claire on at the same time. I, I, I think <laughs> the, the you know that we're going to uh, overtake it and talk about dinosaurs. You know that, right? <laughs> None of us can keep any of them anymore, so it's pointless talking no, the, about. Well, not yet, but <laughs> Robert yeah. Backer just released well, we'll uh, say news that they might be able to, uh, <laughs> to genetically about, alter chickens yeah, into talk, them in the next ten years. Talking about dinosaurs, who's the <laughs> oldest person on this podcast at the moment? Oh, oh shit! Mike. How old I'm forty-one. Is it you, Mike? You're the oldest. I'm a forty. Yeah, I'm forty-one. 1977. Anybody beat that? Gutted, mate. No, that's you. You're the dad. Oh, I'm the dad. <laughs> I'm still the dad. Right then, Francis. Well, technically the granddad, oh. but yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Francis, coach, beat coach the, whips. Beat the gavel. <laughs> no, I'm, I'm joking. Sorry, I've got I have got an important point, and I brought it up on previous podcasts. And 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 what I'm saying is to to Francis is um, he tries to keep or try to give his animals the enrichment they've got 
within their natural environment and i'm i'm, I'm pretty much 100 percent behind that yeah so where i come from where I, I haven't excuse me <laughs> this person on the podcast is speaking <laughs> so where i'm coming from if if there's a better way of keeping your animal that maybe is not they're not lucky enough to have in their own natural environment should we be giving them that right i think, the, the, I think to, to explain that because i don't think that come across as I, I i understand what you you were saying so say for instance we've got the beaded dragon which are quite commonly and widespread across across the australia um in certain microhabitats, the bearded dragon would be thriving, would be doing really well. Or perhaps where they are found, maybe towards a civilization where, where humans congregate around, are the bearded dragons, just because they're found there, does that mean that that is the optimal habitat for that species? Or no. It... No, I don't it believe it is. I don't believe no. it is at all. And these reptiles didn't go to these places and think, Oh, this is lovely. I'm going to stay here. No, no, they were just they were just brought up there, and that's yeah. my point. Mm. Just just because some reptiles exist in an environment they doesn't mean that they are without stress. Yeah. So, for example, yeah, they just got separated. Royal pythons, for example, exhibit a great degree of tolerance for anthropogenic change. In other words, they can deal with humans changing the environment an awful lot, making farmland where before there was savanna or forest. Mm -hmm. that they're actually much better at it than most other reptiles in their environment, meaning that they are they can sort of invade that habitat a lot quicker than other species. That doesn't mean that they aren't stressed or that they don't exhibit uh, increased levels of stress. In they're fact, adapting. Study, yeah, I mean, there was a study recently on brown tree snakes, which is a species I've actually studied on Guam. Now, for, for those who don't know brown tree snakes, it's Boiga irregularis, which is a, it's a sort of medium-sized rear-fanged snake that has basically been introduced on Guam. And because there are no other snakes on Guam, the animals there have got no defense against this snake, which is a dietary generalist. It eats lizards, it eats mammals, it eats birds. And it's made about 18 or 19 species of local wildlife extinct just by breeding so quickly because it's encountered this environment where none of the birds have got a defense against it the lizards you can't even, handle the yeah it can't handle yeah, that species. I mean, one of the things i found out there was that the house geckos on similar islands that do have snakes such as tinian or rota they have uh, reactions to encountering a snake so they have a defense mechanism where they'll drop off a tree or drop off the side of a house they don't exhibit that on guam because they haven't grown up in an environment or they haven't evolved in an environment where there are snakes and of course, the snakes took huge advantage of that. They're now overbred. They're all over the place. And yet they've released recently a study showing that those snakes actually have high levels of stress, despite the fact that they're doing so well. So, yes, it, it could be that just because the snake is in wild or lizards in wild doesn't mean that it's not stressed. It, no. it just depends on how adaptive they are to answer the question. It's, yeah, it's like Jennifer just said, um, stress is a natural behaviour. You're going to find yeah. stress in every animal on every continent all over the world of course, in some way, shape or form. That doesn't mean that the animal isn't going to do well, isn't going to reproduce, isn't going to eat. Mm -hmm. You know, so, I mean, it's still going to be exhibiting stress. But, um, but, and as you, but, and as you I say, think, the animals... The, the reptiles, yeah. And I know I've gone about it before is if you're taking something from a 
one substrate and you're going to put it on a different substrate, that animal might actually benefit from being on a grass substrate than being on a sand stub substrate just because yeah, it lives yeah. on a sand substrate and it has done for a... doesn't mean it necessarily does best on that substrate. And, and, I do no, it doesn't. And I, and I do, and I wholly believe that it's it's species or animal dependent, you know. Well, um, context in, dependent, as in, I said at the beginning of the podcast. Yeah, it depends exactly. on context. Like I, um, you know, say, for instance, I could own a pair of um gtps let's say a pair of gtps or a pair of japanese rat snakes you know to 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 most people exactly the same snake exactly the same species should behave exactly the same they don't they're so different even if you have two males they're completely different um my japanese rat snakes for example the male um loves to bury underneath the moss the female loves to sit in the water bowl they're miles apart from each other you know, they're, they're, they're so completely different. Um, you know, it just goes, it just goes well, to show that... Well, there are two yeah. points I would make about that particular example. So, first of all, have you seen... I mean, do you have two male Japanese rat snakes? Yes. You do? Have you seen them wrestle? No, I don't so, really want to. If you put them together <laughs> during the breeding season, snakes will actually I'd... wrestle. Not in a, an agonistic way. So, I mean, not in a, sorry, not, uh, not in a, a violent way. It's it's nonviolent. They won't bite each other, but they will wrestle for dominance. That's a this form of stress. Ricky, this is there's what, uh, there's going to be a winner and a loser in that interaction. So mm-hmm. as we said earlier, that's uh, acute stress. Stressed hormones will appear in the bloodstream of those animals. The loser will stay stressed. The winner will have its breeding drive increase. And if you put that animal with a female, it will mate. If you put the shed skin of another male into its enclosure, you'll get the same sort of response. Its stress will go up. But it will also induce mm-hmm. breeding. I mean, it, I mean, it's funny you say that. We had Nico, Nico Hussard, yeah, and he said yeah. like, he knows Deep people out. that used to just bang the males into a bucket in the middle of the breeding room, right? Mm-hmm. And just that pheromone and that that what was going on in that bucket where they were wrestling each other were, was releasing all things. And, he, and they went, "That's all we need to do. Put yeah. them back I into mean, the it, it results in a result in that case." The females would respond to it. Everything would respond in that room to basically an all-out war of, of males and testosterone and, and, and the hormones and everything like that. And then all of a sudden, yeah, everything was kicked in and they all started breeding. Yeah. Now, if you go into the wild and you pick up a male Japanese rat snake and you'll see its stress will go up um, and it'll get what's known as emotional fever, which I was going to cover, but I don't think we're going to have time. You put that down, its first thought isn't going to be, I'm going to mate. Its first thought is going to be, I'm going to get the hell out of it. Yeah. Again, it's, it's, it's context sensitive. It, it, it depends. But, um, we've all been in them scary situations, Francis, yeah, where, we, where we've had to run, but we know what the next thing is. Thank fuck for that. Let's go and shag the missus. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right, does, we're, yeah, we're, start, yeah. we're starting to talk about um, behaviour um, of, of animals now and that, that kind of thing. And I think that's something that's quite a valid point as well. So we spend a lot of our time as reptile keepers trying to make the perfect enclosure, making sure that our humidity is correct, that our temperatures are exactly what they're expected to be. And I think we spend a lot of time trying to breed our animals and doing this and doing that. But do any of us 
actually sit there and observe our animals and watch their natural behaviours and ob- observe them doing these things. It's only... I'm doing it now. I'm surrounded by reptiles. Yeah. But again, it's, it's like, so well, I've got a TV in the middle of the room and I, I never switch it on. I've just I've got, I've got vids all around it that I just watch. Okay, well, I'm obviously, I'm obviously, there's, on this podcast, there's, there's, there's quite a few, a, a few clued up keepers. Um, on, on here, so perhaps it's the wrong people to be preaching to. But what what are these behaviours, or what, what you know, what are these expressions that the snakes are almost doing? What are they saying to us? Are we aware that, that when the snake does this, it wants this, or it's thinking this, or it, you know, perhaps we're not doing things correctly? So if you look to at, an extent, yes, so if you absolutely. look at if you look at like a domesticated dog, my dog looks at me in a certain way, and I know that he wants food. You can look at me, and again, I mentioned this in the last podcast. Uh, when, when it's raining outside, Peppa, uh, who's our oldest basset hound, will not go outside, and she will quite happily just take a dump on the floor in the kitchen. Now, I don't need to smell that. Lola will happily come and tell me, and I know exactly <laughs> from the expression on her face that she's grassing her sister her up. Right now, <laughs> I grew up with dogs. You know, they, okay, they have the ability to show facial expressions and, you know, cock their head and make noises and do things that perhaps reptiles cannot do. But is there is there any way of I don't know how to word this without saying like a fucking goon? <laughs> we can't. Yeah. Yeah. You're, you're I mean, there is a way. What your reptile oh, is thinking or yeah. yeah, there is a way of reading your reptiles yes. definitely. I think it's going to take longer than it would for your dog. So oh, what, what, what we're going into here is cues. If your snake is lying up against the glass constantly, it's too warm. The little things that we need to know that inexperienced reptile keepers will not know. Yeah, if so, you know what I mean. Oh, so yeah, more if it is, that. Tongue flicks, the rate of tongue flicks in snakes. Yeah, 100%. Is it can tell yeah. you whether they're exhibiting a fear response, if they're yeah. curious, if they're just lazy and not bothered. Um, eye movements, I mean, there's a great Example would be gaboon vipers. They're basically they sit there doing nothing. If you can see its head, you you know it wouldn't move at all. If you're it's watching its pupil, just the fact that the pupil dilates or moves slightly will tell you that its attention is switched on. Just that little movement is all the warning that you might get before a strike. Yeah, and that's the kind of thing that you have mm-hmm. to be clued up on. Look at if you're keeping that kind of snake. Uh, but not only that, yeah, it, it, uh, something this. something I touch on, which uh, Jen is actually uh, very kindly saying in the comments is we don't actually know everything for every species. And some of the importance is we need people to watch these animals in enriching enclosures to find out what they will actually do. Yeah. Well, uh, as she has explained. Yeah. I think it's worth pointing out what ethology is. So it's basically, yeah, so, yeah. it's a study of natural behavior from an evolutionary perspective. Um, and, and yeah. you know, all of the studies that we've been citing, for example, yeah. Gordon Burkhart, are ethologists, first and foremost. So you have to begin that with a description of what the animals do, both in the wild and also yeah. in a captive environment. Yeah, so when you're pointing you're enrichment towards an animal in how you're creating it, you need to know how that animal behaves in the first place. So yeah. what we do with an animal that we don't know essentially how they behave in every which way, which most animals we actually don't. Yeah. Most reptiles, we do not know all their all of their behaviours. I no. guarantee there are behaviours that royal pythons can exhibit that none of us actually know in Absolutely. any great form. I well, I mean, there was a very famous uh, the python way the reader who said out. that large yeah. pythons never stretch out. And I was like, what? The, 
you, and he, <laughs> he had an arm. I'm not going to say who it is. I'm, I'm sure some of the people listening know. <laughs> we all know. <laughs> we all know. Yeah. And he was arguing with someone else. I think it might have been Daniel Bauer. I'm not sure. That if you've ever seen one in the wild, you'll never see one stretched out. They always they curl up. To which I replied, bollocks. That's how they move. They move yeah, stretched out when they're not stressed. They move in rectilinear motion, caterpillar crawling. They literally yeah. move in stressed out. And if you follow them in Africa, which I've done as it happens with uh, Natal pythons, they move stretched out. They don't, they don't sort of use the same sort of locomotion as other snakes unless they're threatened. If they're, they're yeah, becoming the same as they just straighten so, themselves out. And so without overcomplicating that, without overcomplicating that, it shows how one of the most important things we can do for captive husbandry is look or hope that somebody has gone out there into the wild and and watched these animals, observed them, seen what they will do in their environment, in no matter what happens in the environment. Their environment they're living. Yeah, where in their environment, but not only where they see them in the environment, but where they use the environment all the way through the year, through different seasons, through different experiences. Um, I think something that I've picked up on recently as well, um, and again, it's only because I, I sit in my outhouse out, out where my reptiles are whilst I do the podcast, and I'm currently actually sitting in, it's dark, the room's completely dark, the only light I've got is from the laptop screen. Now, my white lips spend predominantly majority of the day on the ground. Now, all the lights are off, all the heat's off, um, yet both white lips are actually on the branches, and they're literally there, almost called like a GTP, waiting. Now, that tells me they're hungry. That, that, now, yeah. in, in my opinion... They, they know that you're around and they associate you with food, possibly. P- possibly. However, the position that they're in, if a little mouse was to wonder by they're in perfect position to grab that so of a night time they go into this position every single night now that's something that they don't do in the day when they're not digesting yeah when they're digesting they're hiding when they've eaten and they've got a a full stomach or recently eaten Mm -hmm. um they are they they don't do this but at the moment because i mean i mean i'm calling the animals they haven't eaten for oh eight being correct uh, for the best part of eight weeks now um and they're hungry. They want some food, and they're in this position. Now, that is natural behaviour that you would probably find, you know, out there in the wild. And they probably do loads of other things that I'm completely oblivious of, because unfortunately, of, yeah. I work sixty hours a week and can't watch my reptiles twenty-four-seven. Yeah, yeah, but even said that, you, that, you, said that, you still Japanese know rat. your animals. Yeah, I mean, but it goes you? back to what Danny said about his Japanese rat snakes: that the male does one thing, the female does another, and that's an important point because even when it comes to thermoregulating. So there's an expression called preferred temperature. This is the the temperature that the animal prefers to regulate its body to. Mm -hmm. Now, surprisingly enough for reptiles, it's quite often very close to mammals. It's just that they have a different way of getting to that temperature. So preferred temperature or TP, it varies throughout the reptile's life. It varies between a male and a female, between a pregnant or gravid female and a non-pregnant or non-gravid female between uh, an adult and a youngster. It varies by time of year. You can't have one constant temperature, for example, and expect that that is the right temperature for the animal. Now, going back, I think it was Mike that was asking about the optimum, the idea of the optimum conditions. That doesn't exist for reptiles, or I mean, with a few exceptions that are, thermo, that are obligate thermoconformers. But what we find is that optimum temperature, which is basically the optimum temperature that the animal can be for its biological processes to work correctly, is not the same as the animal's preferred temperature. There's a, there's a trade-off. 
Yeah, yeah, so for absolutely. Example, basking uh, makes the animal vulnerable to predation, for example, or it might mm. take time from the animal hunting and feeding itself. So it's a trade-off between various factors. And that changes, you know, sometimes day by day or week by week. It's, it's not something that you can have one optimum gold standard temperature for. You have to have a, a choice of temperatures, a choice of light, a choice of humidity, and allow the animal to travel between those two points. And that is... Options. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I mean... That it, is enrichment. That, 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 that whole right, this animal needs ninety degrees is 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 no, like outdated now, because when you get your animal, what you do is you set it at the optimum uh, temperature that you think it should be set at, based on its environment or whatever or whatever you've been told, and then you'll be able to tell by the animal's responses whether you need to turn that down a little bit or you need to increase it. But you can only do that by watching your animal. And again, there are exceptions to that. I mean, James Hicks, who was supposed to be on the podcast, um, was detailing a really good example of thermoconforming lizards. I think they were Acanthosaura, um, you know, uh, Asian tree dragons, which live at the same temperature. The temperature just remains in the the same band of two or three degrees. And they just, they don't give it, they don't care. But all of the commonly kept species, all of them, every single one of the commonly kept species, isn't like that. They all thermoregulate no. to one degree yeah. or another. Absolutely, yeah. And, and which, which a, a, a lot of the problem as well. Yeah, yeah. And a lot of the problem as well is a lot of a lot of myths and the ways people keep uh, in the hobby with these common species did at some point come from wild observation. Yeah. But the problem is, though, those things I'll say even ninety percent of the time, almost all of the time came from they a really, single observation they, they at a single mounds, time <laughs> the termite mounds <laughs> yeah. the, the, the humidity and moisture of leopard geckos the, the list would yeah. go on and on so yeah, i'd yeah. like to i'd like to take more of an approach that say people like ben owens takes yeah, he goes out there things. yeah he, he goes out there and many other people do this and and they see an animal and they observe it for a while they take really good data and they observe them and they find something amazing out and they don't go wow this is how i should keep this, this is how 100 yeah, but they no. don't they don't say that they they sit back and they go this is wow I'm, go- I'm going to come <laughs> back out here in the next season and find out what they do in that season as well yeah exactly come across as for my husband and they say and they say this is what i've witnessed yeah not this yeah. is how live not absolutely they, they always do this yeah. and that's the thing for me. at this temperature without varying and this is how it should yeah. be kept that is the thing for me is you cannot say you have to keep this animal like this under right. these conditions because even if you're keeping the same species it might not want that yeah can we do a little bit of myth, myth no, busting as well please yeah <laughs> go on um, because it, start with Taron, he's asleep. <laughs> he's loving this. Wakey, wakey. So I, I think I, he's just I listening. Don't, I don't think there's a, there's a single person that's currently on this podcast at the moment that hasn't got pissed off by this general statement. Um, and this is, you know, fuck, fuck, it's not even an agony, Danny. This is an agony hoss. Right. So, <laughs> oh, dear. God. The, <laughs> <laughs> right. So, 
Oh yeah, so my uh, my Let's start crying in a minute. My my, my, my Bob, my Bob. Put up a new jingle for this. <laughs> so, <laughs> Horses are cunt. <laughs> Come on. Okay, so it's basically my ball python. I keep him in a in a really small <laughs> rub, like thirty three liter, because like you know he lives in a termite mound in the wild, and I'm recreating that habitat. Fuck off. Was that Irish? I, I don't yeah. know what it was. Right, it was pure frustration. But fuck off. <laughs> like. I mean, do one. Termite Mounds is, is my favourite one. Royal pythons and Termite Mounds. Go on, now, go on, do it, do it. I'm privileged in that I've actually seen wild royal pythons and they weren't anywhere near a Termite Mound. You sure? That doesn't mean <laughs> that they don't use Termite Mounds. Of course they do. I mean, Andrew yeah, Bennett... Of course they do. It makes a perfect hide. That's yeah, all the thing is, so do rock monitors and metal yeah, pythons of course. and black mandrels. A Termite Mound, a termite mound is just, just a perfect hide. You know, striped skins, they all use Termite yeah. Mounds because they're great. They keep a constant temperature in a lab. It's cool, it's humid system of, of tunnels. It's, they're, they're amazing. But the thing is that raw pythons occur in places where there are no termite mounds. Yeah, exactly. They all, you know, they, they occur across, you know, a whole band of Africa from around Sudan down to about Nigeria, Ghana, Togo, just that whole band of equatorial Africa. And they don't yeah. occur just in the one habitat. They occur in farmland. They occur in mangrove swamps. They occur in primary rainforests. Sure, they, they occur yeah, on savannah. Not all of those have termite mounds. Where termite mounds occur, yeah, I'm sure they do use them. They don't spend their lives in them, though. No. So there are no, two times of year that they would live in there. They would live in there to estivate for about the three months of year when it's the dry season. And yeah. females are known to incubate eggs in them. That mm -hmm. accounts for six yeah, months say, of they... the year. There's another six months of the year that you have to account for where they're not in the termite mounds or in these burrows, where they're actually out and about and you know actively foraging. They're, they're not actually ambush yeah. hunters. They forage. Yeah. There comes the issue of basing your husbandry <laughs> on one single little fact of an animal's wild ecology. Um, yeah, that's no for, good. For example, Ikeb zebra skinks that very commonly in the wild also use abandoned termite mounds as yes. hides and they use them in family groups like that. I would mm. never in hell use a. a a, a, a termite mound is an only example of any skink's husbandry. That would be horrendous for them. But that's I mean, exactly the, the example. Other, the other point is that them. termite mounds can be quite big. So uh, which yeah. part of the termites are, are they living? They can be like, taller than you. Uh, didn't London Zoo have an example of this? They're like the size of a house. <laughs> Did, <laughs> didn't, didn't ZSL uh, in London uh, have an example of this at one point? Or was it somewhere else? No, they did was, uh, build... A, uh, a a large termite mound basically enclosure and it was oh, actually was pretty sizable. Yeah, oh, was it? They've, 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 yeah, they've got one down in London. Yeah, and and it actually has space in it, including a termite mound. Yeah, which How is fine. That, that's done. great. Yeah. Not included. But it's like Francis yeah. said. It's like yeah. Francis said. The termite mounds, or you know, underneath the termite mounds, the tunnels and the and the little hollows, they hold a a, a constant temperature where the sun isn't. Or you know the, the 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 heat isn't affecting it so much. Um, yeah. They're nice and humid, um, and they're secure. Of course, yeah. these animals are using them as hides. Of course, they are. Like what what part of you? Why ever wouldn't they? It's such an ideal. A surprise. Like how a, is this a surprise for anybody? Exactly. Lo loads of things use it. You get rats in there as well. I mean, I've seen shrews coming out of them. <laughs> well, <laughs> absolutely. Know. But you wouldn't the, the apply bats, that to their, all of their lives. I don't. I don't understand why this was ever a surprise to that person. 
You know, uh, of it, course they're using it as a hide. It it's, became, it's the perfect place. It but I think I think there's a lot of myths and legends that have come across. A lot of myths and legends have come across just by one person saying one thing, and it's yeah, just and, just and, and, and not only that, not only that. A lot of the myth also comes along with uh, forgetting that the animals used in these examples, like royal pythons, are one of the hardiest snakes out there. Yeah. They, they they live in such a range of conditions that you oh, can't put colonizers. them. They, they, they recolonize yeah. farmlands really quickly, like much, and much quicker than other reptiles. Their yeah. hardiness is their downfall. Yeah, yeah the hardiness is their downfall. And That's hence why, hence they're, why they're so like commonly kept and so easily bred. Yeah. But the interesting thing about them is, in I the mean, 50s and 60s, nobody thought that they lived in Turman. Nobody, you know, if you read books, I've got black and white books from the 40s and the 50s and 60s, yeah. and they all say... They, you know, they can climb some of the time. They eat birds and mice. None of these misconceptions are in those old books. Those, those, these, these they're, misconceptions they're more accurate than the newer books. Yeah, they're new because, <laughs> and the reason that they've come out about it is yeah, they'll be full of shit. They will. <laughs> they find them at the times of year when they're estivating. So when they're living yeah. in forests for three months a year, the local trackers are extremely good at finding them, following the tracks. Mm-hmm. They can tell which burrows are occupied just by observing the outside of the burrow for shed skin and feces. They can then dig out the snakes, and a lot of um, importers have gone out. They've gone at the time of year to Ghana, for example, when literally it's so hot that nothing is out. It's, you know, you, you don't see anything because it's so hot unless you're looking at night. They're following these trackers to the burrows where they know the snakes are. They're digging them out, and they're saying, oh, they live in the burrows all the time. Except that when the rainy season comes, they come out of the burrows, and for example, the males are climbing up trees and eating birds and bats and bush babies, which don't live down burrows. No, yeah, no, I mean, I know. We've got at least three separate studies on the dietary components of royal pythons. It's, it's a very well studied snake. Yeah, yeah. I know. Uh, There's nothing to suggest they live just and, in the Sean and Jen had a little trip out to. Uh, oh, God, my mind's just gone blank now. But uh, Rio, Rio de Janeiro, did they? Um, no, wasn't it recently? And that, well, they had, a, they had a great shot of a boa constrictor right up, high up, yeah, high up in the tree. This is the boa that was uh, staying on the ground and and was not, you know, doesn't climb the trees. And uh, Sean took a great picture of it, like right high up, sort of like 20 foot up in the tree. Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, but it's Sorry, I've just silenced everybody there, haven't I? No, but, uh, uh, no, a, no. a lot of this becomes uh, where people didn't eat these animals well as well. Uh, take for yeah. example at work we have uh, we have a trio of royals being kept together at work uh, in a large enclosure with UV with halogen heating uh, and they're thriving they 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 are monstrous feeders. Uh, you used to keep a really decent enclosure like that too, didn't you, Ricky? And you know, uh, I did. Honest, and yeah, you, I mean, uh, these animals the are fine like that. of the animals actually coming out onto a perch two feet in the yeah. air to bask under the UV. And not you only know, that's that, not too, a stress animal, that's and, an animal exhibiting natural behaviour. And they'll come out and feed at those levels of high up as well. Mm-hmm. Well, um, I mean, to be honest, I'm not a royal breeder. Or I've, you know, I've, I've had my pair of royals and bred them for many yeah, years. You know, but mine didn't miss feeds very rarely. I mean, now and then the male did, which I suppose is natural. But some, you know, they never missed feeds. They never got stressed. They never had bad sheds. They were constantly out and moving in their enclosure. They climbed a lot. They basked under UV. And you read some of the comments from, from newer keepers that are having troubles getting them to feed, getting them to shed. 
And you're like, is this the same species? Yeah, so that that's where it's it's like, where are people actually basing the need for the these minimalistic enclosures? When well, the exact same, uh, and, and, and perhaps even more with some uh, monitoring, how are these animals doing the same, if not better, in enriched enclosures? Not and by that, better, I mean by exhibiting the... other uh, behaviours that they would otherwise. Well, one of know. the things that you see a lot is that males supposedly are harder to feed and that males often go off food. Now, yeah. we know that males have a completely different dietary niche to females to the point that their parasite loads are completely different in the wild yeah. because yeah. they're climbing up trees and they're eating. I mean, their main dietary, uh, the main component of their diet in at least two studies, one in Nigeria, one in Ghana, was cysticola warblers, which are boreal bush-living birds. They don't come to the ground. You have um, examples of at least two different types of bat, a macrotroptera, a type of fruit bat, and microtroptera, a smaller bat, being found in their stomach. They've eaten gallegos, which are, again, aboreal bush babies. They've eaten pigeons, you know, the, and, the fruit stuffs. They've and in such numbers that, that these... Aboreal animals that they're eating. Yeah, and they so, cannot all have, have ended up at the entrance well, of a Well, I, I, I very much doubt that they found all of those at the bottom of some burrow or inside a termite mound. Now... Yeah. If we know that the dietary component of males is different, then that is something that directly affects their husbandry. That's something that yeah. we can use. You can offer them quail chicks or dale chicks or whatever, you know, to fit the size of the snake. Who knows? You might find that they start eating more. It's yeah. an interesting observation that you can directly translate to the captive husbandry. And I personally did find that uh, one of my males did uh, enjoy birds even more did have well, a better chicks, feed response to birds. But uh, then again, that's mine were the kind of snakes that ate everything, so I can't say yeah. that they preferred. I mean, if you put it in front of them, they would eat them. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. We, we, we've actually proven tonight, if we get the right people on the podcast, the hosts don't have actually have to say anything. <laughs> oh, yeah, I'm just sat here. Nice to hear. You know what's really funny? Um, I Earlier, probably about half an hour ago, I actually went for a poo and come back, and Francis was still That's talking. Still talking. So did I. <laughs> I've had three pieces and about 20 cans. There's a wonderful <laughs> thing about being able to mute this. <laughs> Before we wrap up, there is one other piece of equipment that I oh, want to... Hang on a second. You, you, uh, excuse we're, me. we're before, the hosts. We, we say we fucking wrap up. Before we wrap up, up I just want to say how sexy Ricky's voice is tonight on the podcast. I mean, I spoke to Ricky in, in person, and I tell you what, he's got a sexy radio voice, 100%. Uh, the, the alcohol definitely helps <laughs> but it's not made for TV bless <laughs> hey, hey. don't worry uh, don't worry none of us are <laughs> look, we're only made for Doncaster yeah right okay so obviously we've spoke about an absolute abundance of information is um, Taron still alive I'm still here Oh, bless him. Do you know what? He's been good oh. as gold all night. Just, uh, is there just anything forward to bring forward? Uh, what was that? Taron, how are you? Are you alright? Come on, mate. Come on, mate. One on one. Me and you, babe. How are you? <laughs> I'm alright, babe. How are you? How's, how's, how's life? Good. good how, 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 are yeah, so the monkey tails, they basically are your family. Forget the rest of them. They are, they are. That's, that's exactly who I meant, Ricky. <laughs> Bye, Louise. <laughs> Bye, Louise. 
How are the monkey chows? <laughs> I'm getting stared at by Wally right now. <laughs> and Louise? Uh, uh, no, he's not staring at her. No, that's good. <laughs> uh, brilliant. Yeah, oh dear. Okay, guys, so we're going to have to start wrapping it up uh, because we've literally got a couple of minutes. Two hours left. and 50 minutes? Yeah. Well, yeah, yeah, already. Mate, I've not eaten all my fruit gums. <laughs> How many you got left? Um, six. That's that's one 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 each. Mate, that's about that's about ten minutes of cheering. <laughs> <laughs> oh man! Right, so let's get on to the next rant. So oh, fuck off. Right, um, <laughs> we're gonna have to start wrapping it up because obviously we've 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 only got so much allowance per episode. Um, but again, thanks guys. Uh, thanks Francis. You must have a really sore throat. There's a bag of strepsils on me, mate. <laughs> I can't wait until you can I make five-hour podcasts. No, don't ever apologise. Um, no. Somebody that wants you to talk enough is uh, brilliant. Francis, you're a man after my own heart. <laughs> I'll just say, get a solar meter. There we go. That's, that's another <laughs> important piece of equipment. I had to get it in there. I think I think what we need to do as well is there's a couple of different things that I'd like to go into more detail that we brought up. So obviously we could go into the the actual light spectrum um, in so much 100%. detail. Um, definitely. I think yeah. we need to get well, another podcast Red on cognition that. and emotion would be an interesting one. Francis, Francis I'm going to be really blunt now. This is the <laughs> time where the hosts just talk. <laughs> Shut the fuck up! Shut the fuck up! Our <laughs> listeners, what they're going to be listening to in the next couple of weeks. Right. You're a bit late with that, Danny. <laughs> okay, so... I'll do it to myself. <laughs> yeah, so obviously, this is the um, the Christmas finale. You are not getting a podcast out of us for another two weeks. Um, I am going to look at my phone and tell you when the next episode will be back because I should have I should have wrote that down earlier, to be completely honest. Um, Fucking hell. Call yourself the hostess. Tell you what. I'll tell you what we're going to do. We are going to come on. We're going to do a quick one just before Christmas <laughs> and we're going to announce the winner of the um, the amazing giveaway. giveaway that we with the Christmas giveaway. Yes, yeah, so that that'll be Boxing Day. That will do, uh, Boxing Day. We're going to do that. Um, but you won't actually have a proper podcast until the seventh of January. Um, this is how this is how you upset three grown men at one point. Anyone who's been on the podcast cannot win. <laughs> <laughs> Inside, they're seething. You know it. It's been sitting in my kitchen for weeks, mate. It looks so good. Is it possible? Anybody can fucking have it. Get I'm surprised the there's not an animal in there. If I'm honest with you. Well. He's going to have to clean it out when it comes to giving it away. So, so, guys, I just want to thank you all for, like, there's loads of our listeners who have joined in tonight, and I'm re- we're really grateful, aren't we, guys? Yeah, so let, before you all fuck off, because it's time for bed. It's, uh, That's one pound in the pot. It might have been a couple of pounds in this part. Um, yeah, yeah, we owe Right, okay, let me get let me let me get a, an up to date stat of how many people have tuned into this podcast live as well. Everyone just hum and stuff because it's going to take oh, me about ten eight. minutes. Oh. How many so, have to do, so, do this? We have to do this on a regular basis. So there's, there's currently 115 people listening to this podcast. So again, everyone who's, who's tuned in tonight to listen to this live, thank you. This is the first time we've done anything. amazing. It's the yeah. first time we've done anything like this. You know, we've had people talking to us for the last two and a half hours on the chat 
asking questions, dropping in that. That's really good. You know, again, it's it's this is what it's about. It's not about us three fucking bearded tattoo dickheads talking. It's about getting the guests on. It's about talking about the hobby. It's about learning. It's about asking questions. It's about questions. getting the more interesting people on. Well, well, yeah, we'll, we'll do that in the oh. new year. Then. Oh. Do you know oh. what? Oh. Somebody I'm saying nothing. Right. He just you know, you know what? <laughs> what? <laughs> right, right. Mute him. <laughs> yeah, so, but it, it, it's across the whole of the hobby. Yes, it goes from very experienced keepers right the way through to people who are just starting out. Um, Absolutely. And always, word of the week: keepers. We, we just want to. We just want to appeal to people that enjoy the hobby. More importantly, want to have a laugh about the hobby and stop getting fucked off and 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 swearing about stupid things that we don't need to let's just enjoy it and have a laugh along the way okay so just some quick quick links um please go out and check out uh, kingston exotics because they've got their new product danny will never ever plug his own business no he doesn't doesn't um because he's good like that also as well go out and check taron's website out um is that bioactiveherbs.com or .co.uk (laughs) what was that in english both, both work, mate. <laughs> right, okay, cool. So <laughs> go and check him out. Um, if you've got any questions, feel free to message Francis uh, and annoy him over the Christmas period, more than Taryn and Ricky, because he really deserves it. Um, again, there's loads and loads of people who've been buying T-shirts and calendars. I believe they're all out, out in the post now. Or they've been yeah, ordered. they was ordered the other the other day, right. so they'll be out within the next couple of days. Yeah, so, uh, it's, over... probably, it's probably why our calendar completely failed. Might be. I don't know. I wouldn't like to. Who, whose calendar? Um, <laughs> whose who's calendar? <laughs> so, um, Advancing her pathological over, husbandry. Over the last, hey, over the last, plug. <laughs> over the last week, we've raised just over four hundred pound with t-shirt and calendar sales. So again, thank you guys for doing that. It's you guys doing it, not us. Um, if you do want to buy a t-shirt or a calendar or anything like that, if you go on to reptileandchill.bigcartel.com. Also, if you do want to donate money to our, our ongoing course with Mental Health UK, that is justgiving.com forward slash fundraising forward slash reptile and chill. And I think that's about it for this year. Um, I, I've i got nothing else to say. Uh, I don't plan to do any more talking until the 7th of January. Um, I, just, yeah. I just want to say... Um, I do want to, I do want to plug um, some if, if possible. Go on, go on, Rick. I was like, uh, we do have a little competition, a little raffle going on that will be ending on Christmas Day, uh, which you can find on UK Herpetological and Invertebrate Hub. Uh, mm-hmm. And it, uh, there's quite amazing prizes in there, worth a lot of money. A few awesome books on venomous snakes and a bit more artwork. Get and it's all there, dedicated. Guys. It's all dedicated to Helt, uh, Tell Hicks, Helt Hicks, uh, yeah. Tell Hicks, who's unfortunately uh, very not lovely man. Moment with a uh, very lovely man uh, through an injury, and he's he's amazing, uh, a real hobby legend uh, who honestly can't push anymore. If you meet the man at any of the shows and have a chat with him, he's lovely, Ricky, and he has just... some history that people don't know. Ricky, we've plugged him on pretty much most of our shows since he's yeah, and, and and yeah. we are massive massive fans of tell and we're 100 yeah. percent. so listeners if you can back ricky up the there, we do that get on there because uh that'll mean a, a, a make a massive effect on his family and uh 
Yeah. Get on the raffle. It's only five pound a ticket with amazing prizes, and it ends on Christmas Day. Well, get on it. Awesome. Get well, on well, it. Just before we sign off, Francis, have you got one final thing to say? <clears throat> Many. Um, so, if you want to know more or keep up with, or if my voice hasn't annoyed the hell out of you this uh, this afternoon, uh, just follow me on Advancing Herp's Logical Husbandry, or join me and Sam Perrett on Herp HQ and Herp Bites. Cool, nice one. Well, on behalf of everyone in Reptile and Chill, have an absolutely fucking awesome Christmas. Happy New Year. And drink all the fucking alcohol. Have a really good time. I hope Santa brings everything you've been asking for. (laughs) And that's it. Good night, guys. Thanks for coming on. Good night, guys. Good night, night, guys. guys. Happy Christmas. Happy Christmas. Oh, Taran. Here's the thing about new Cherry Vanilla Coke. Though Cherry's named first, all the flavors taste just as great. I mean, it could have just as easily been Vanilla Cherry Coke. Or it could have been Coke Cherry Vanilla. And since it's two amazing flavors of Coke, it might have been Coke Vanilla Cherry Coke or Cherry Vanilla Coke Coke. <clears throat> Unless you're in France, which would make it Le Coke de la Vanilla de la Cherry de la Creme. New Cherry Vanilla Coke, so good together. And New Cherry Vanilla Coke Zero Sugar, same great taste, zero sugar. <laughs>